0: You're listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. This show is a long-form one-on-one conversation with a veteran in the arts. This show is produced by Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a tax-exempt, nonprofit, 501c3 organization, which provides a platform for current or former military, law enforcement, fire, EMS, intelligence service, foreign service, DOD employees, and contractors, and their immediate family members to create compelling professional live theater and events. Ivan Ingram was not originally going to be a guest on Savage Wonder. Uh, I was going to have him do Profiles in Havoc and um, it seemed like he was writing a lot of nonfiction and um, you know good, solid, meaty, argumentative stuff. He was writing, he had written a, a piece of Havoc. He's now written a couple of pieces of Havoc. Um, so that's where I thought... Uh, you know, this episode was going to go. And then um, I'm going to blame Ben Fortier because why not? Let's just blame Ben. Um, I did not realize how much other writing Ivan was doing. Plays, screenplays, fictional pieces, all of that. I guess I should blame Ivan too for not having a website that's an easy catch-all. But anyway, my point in saying all this is that it was a pleasure to discover. This is one of my... The most surprising episodes to me just because i did not know as much as i thought i knew going into it um and to learn how much work ivan's put into developing himself as a fiction writer um and yet still being open to so many other different forms of written media was really um it was you know super interesting the conversation uh, you you know ivan spent 24 years in MARSOC or or as a Marine officer, initially as an infantry officer and then in MARSOC. Um, I think he said he spent about three years total uh, accumulated time in Afghanistan. So there's no way we weren't going to talk about a lot of weighty geopolitical issues. machinations and issues and um, the withdrawal of Afghanistan and all that, and there is certainly a lot of intersection and overlap between that and the writing that Ivan does. Um, We talk about plenty of nonfiction stuff you'll hear right off the bat. We get really in the weeds with his arguments in favor of keeping the A-10, the warthog, for close air support. And um, so for those of you that tune in for deep artistic content. Initially, it's going to be like opening a tech manual uh, a little bit, not really, but it, you know, it, it's definitely, we were going down that path. And then as I, as I started to discover how much other stuff I haven't had going on, I was like, Jesus Christ, uh, people should know about him. Um, not just through the Havoc family, but through, through the arts community, the veteran arts community as well. And, um, it was just, it couldn't have been a, a, a better conversation. I really enjoyed the hell out of talking with Ivan. And um, I, I'm trying to stay away from saying the same thing with almost every guest. The problem is I always mean it. So it's hard for me to, to think of a better way to phrase this. But for somebody like Ivan that has so many different irons in the fire, it's it's going to be very interesting to see what comes down the path for him first what what is gonna catch fire first for him and uh that should be exciting okay I'm Christopher Paul Meyer I'm the artistic director at Veterans Repertory Theater and this is the savage wonder of Ivan Ingram
1: Welcome to the show Ivan. Thank you.
0: So first off, I've got a bone to pick with myself because I don't know how so we we should talk about how we got connected through our mutual friend Ben Fortier. Right. Yes. And and Ben goes, "Hey, you know Ivan's written here, he's written for Task and & Purpose and Warhorse." And then Ben said and Real Clear Defense, which is a lie because he wrote for Havoc Journal and it went on to Real Clear Defense and I should have known that ahead of time. And I should have called you out and I should have connected with you far before Ben ever did. So that's all on me. So I'm starting with a mea culpa. How about that?
1: Well, I, I certainly appreciate that. And I will say that within the the masthead of, of Havoc Journal, um, I, I've spoken via email with several different people. And because of, <laughs> uh, I won't say anonymity, but let's say pseudonyms, I actually... Don't know if I had ever talked to you before. So you, you it, haven't. It's not,
0: you haven't. Yeah. No, so it's yeah, not, it's not yeah.
1: necessarily yeah. your fault. It's really more of a, you know, are, are we really talking to each other, or you know, did Ben Ben say in in good faith? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Yeah. This that's something a, we should do. <laughs> that is
0: true. Yeah. No, I'll tell you, it was a lot more squirrely about ten years ago too, when really it was everybody was still active, and it was like, who the hell are we talking to? Like, there's so so many pseudonyms flying around, and Between all the writers and all the moving parts, I know it. it, And I can be it's funky. I understand
1: that, and I want to be completely respectful of it. So this is not this is not me calling out. Well, technically, Chris, I (laughs) talked to this guy, but he's not that guy. And
0: yeah, well, Charlie Faint, the owner of Havoc, and I have joked about it a lot. So you're no, you're in good company. I think it's something when he comes to you and asks
1: how I got on the journal on the podcast. Because he asked me about going on the podcast, uh, I'm going to stay out of this. In the middle of just at this point, <laughs> you've brokered yeah. the deal, we've made it, and yeah. and then when he hears me, I'll let him send the email and say, "How did you get around me?" I, I don't, I don't really. I, I'm, I'm happy to be part of the the the, the group. I'm no, listen, the journey.
0: I'm I'm thr- I'm, I'm thrilled that um, first off, not just that you wrote for Havoc, um, because that's the company line, but I, uh, the piece you wrote for Havoc is crucial. And I got to be honest with you, it's been a while since I've had a guest on who I feel like I'm probably going to agree with quite as much as I think oh. I will with you, which <laughs> promises to make this an incredibly boring interview. But I, <laughs> um, but your piece on the A-10 and the, the crucial reasons why it needs to stay in existence and not diminish the TACP personnel and all the rest of it is, um, I feel like, and you reference it. This is not the first time this argument has been made and needed to be made. This is something that I feel like eight, 10 years ago, we were hearing this as well. I feel like this comes up occasionally, but now the threat has never been greater to the program and your writing on it, I thought was excruciatingly well done because there was so many specifics. You walk through the numbers, you walk through the money, and then you walk through the practical reasons. Can you Let's just start with that. Can you talk about the genesis of why it was worth your time to sit down and actually write this up?
1: Sure. Well, as I as I mentioned and lead with in the article, I'm no no hyperbole. I am living testament of of that platform's effectiveness and why why a ground force commander, uh, why a troop commander involved in in ground combat would require something of that of that caliber and I got involved with a group of very concerned veterans and Americans that I also mentioned in the article troopsincontact.org mm-hmm. um and as a professional writer they they are indeed grassroots lobbyists they are very well informed on the platform most of them being uh either A10 veterans or associated in some capacity in the TACP world, uh, JTAC world, they they then started to ask me kind of how I, what I could lend to it in, in mm. some of the lobbying they were doing, and I thought my better voice is not so much going face to face, although I, I certainly don't mind talking to people. Sure, writing is my my best vehicle, and it's where I can probably have the most impact. And so, truth and lending. The article actually has quite a bit of fact-checking. And if you see numbers and quantitatives, mm-hmm. those are all provided to me by the people who who help manage the troops in contact. Uh, I'll call it the foundation, but sure. The, the, sure. the actual efforts. And I helped give a voice to that. And that was the way that I could do that. And then, of course, um, lending my own anecdotes uh, and experience to it helped Give some legitimacy from the ground side that they, those who were involved on the on, in the air side, couldn't necessarily articulate. And at the same time, I had to uh, understand their perspective to indeed translate what what they were trying to say. Some of it quite technical, sure, uh, to make it to make it readable. Sure, so it was a, it was a, it was a joint effort um, to to make that happen. Although my name's on the byline, the people that I worked with were. Quite adamant that it, they not be in lights, which I appreciated. It's, wow, it's, there's a humility yeah. there that I that I admire very. Oh, absolutely, and, yeah. on it. and we're actually looking at trying to. Uh, I may be getting a little ahead, but uh, we'll follow up a part two because sort of part one's my ideas
0: mm-hmm. or my
1: perspective, their ideas, kind of how we got here, and then just as that article was published, uh, General Carilla a former special operations, he's a ranger uh, regiment guy who now is running CENTCOM, uh, requested the A-10 to be forward deployed just in case of any sort of saber rattling by way of the Iranians uh, Mm -hmm. or any other forces inside of that kind of volatile region that we always seem to be dealing with. So that was very quietly done and not really brought to the attention, even though uh, of the of the american public as to what kind of forces are out there but it'd be worth following up to actually look at just how often the a10 not only is has been employed but how often it's out there for deployed uh as as a force in readiness because that's what it is it does what a plot its platform and its design does what quite frankly nothing else can and the argument just one more piece yeah isn't so much that I mean, I think we should keep the A10, and you could you could modernize it based upon the conversations I've had with with, with my compatriots. You and for relatively
0: it. cheaply, as you point out.
1: Ab- absolutely, yeah. pennies on the dollar. Yeah, for maximum effectiveness. Um, but more, moreover, that the 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 platform itself isn't necessarily the answer. If they want to revamp and have a better cl- close air support platform, go to it. It's it's clear the air force will spend the money on the projects that it deems worthwhile f35 or what have you uh f22 uh, excuse me and, and and never mind this the now sixth generation sort of ai pilotless fighter right. that they're experimenting with and i, I don't want to get too far ahead on that sure. but really what it comes down to is the a10 is designed to fight the folder gap wars in the 1970s and 1980s and, and combat large numbers of uh russian Armored forces, armored armored formations in low-level, in expeditionary airfields, and seemingly we want to get rid of that, yet the, the preponderance of the wars we continue to fight are just in that type of environment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've
1: fought and been everywhere, but that's kind of where that comes from. I guess you, you just open a box as I just started talking, talking, talking. So no, no, no. For a moment. No, no, no. But Listen. That's, that's where it all comes from, and that's kind of how we got here.
0: There's a, there's a lot of meat to chew on that bone, so let me let me dive into uh the first thing that comes to mind. Um, you talk in the article that you always, as everyone in in the soft community does, you know, you requested capabilities, not specific platforms. It's just that the A-10 was the best platform for this specific capability. And as you just said, hey, if they want to develop something else, have at it. Is there a concern? That if the Air Force was to do a hard gear shift, though, away from the A-10 and go down the path of experimenting with something new, that the delta between their comfort level and JTAC and, 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 and TAC-P's comfort level with an A-10 and whatever the new platform is could really be significant. And the learning curve that has to occur and the fact that it's literally battle uh, combat tested battle approved. And whatever the new platform is, isn't. And I worry. Uh, my first thought was how many do we lose? How many times do we go beyond danger close? How many times do we actually have true blue on blue because it's just a new platform and the learning curve it was too steep and we shouldn't have phased out the A tank that quickly? Is that, a, I mean, obviously everything has to modernize, everything has to improve. There's always going to be progress uh, technologically. Um how much of a concern is that? Is that a worthwhile concern? Is, does that mean that we should just always have the A10 there and that should always be kind of our gateway to cast just because, until we get really familiar with whatever a new platform is? Or do you think, or would you be comfortable saying, "Yeah, let's do a hard pivot as long as you guys are dedicated to doing the hard pivot, we're not in a hot war so much anymore. So take the time, get smart on whatever the new platform is, and you would be comfortable with that.
1: Uh, I think the answer is the dreaded. It depends. And Mm -hmm. what I mean by that is that in order to build a capability, you have to get reps. How do you get reps? You have to put yourself in situations that allow you to build a a, a force that has that ability. So it's almost like in order to go to combat, you first have to go to combat. Okay. So that just becomes a non, a non-starter. Um, in my case with my first employment with the A-10, it was an emergency request so an ECAS emergency close air support request and the a10s checked on because they were available um that happened to be of course the platform that we wanted in light yeah. of the situation that we were in and then future engagements we we always tried to see where they were and, and what was available but let's not forget that by that time you have a a10 pilot population that has been as you said, battle-tested, they've got a, a preponderance of experience in two theaters, um, multiple engagements, mistakes have been made. I'm not going to mm-hmm. make apologies for certain, some of the uh, items, but some of them quite high-profile, that have happened over the years sure. um, in combat. But you, because of those mistakes, lessons are learned. But when you start trimming away training at the behest of increasing your your pilot throughput or your pilot expertise in development you run into kind of what the army is running uh, experiencing right now in their helicopter pilots they've had actually a disproportionately large number of helicopter accidents and mishaps yeah uh, resulting in the deaths of crew members the deaths of soldiers the marine corps is not immune yeah. they just had a an osprey yeah. crash last week three three marines were killed eight are still in the hospital i mean the, the, Service is a dangerous business, but you're not about. It's not about elimination; it's mitigation as far as the risk that you're you're taking into here. Now, I'm not casting blame on any of the Marines, pilots, uh, or crew chief in that accident who who died. I'm, it's my understanding they did everything they could to try and save the members in the back. I'm not saying that the pilots themselves in these aircraft mishaps that have been happening with the Army. Uh, again, I don't have all the official documentation, and so I'm caveating all of this. In that, what it appears to be, though, is tied to those reps and trying to get things moving, perhaps faster than is is safe. That is increasing the risk yeah. uh, when you start to perform those things. Now, you you exacerbate that, particularly when you do close air support with aerial delivered munitions. You talk about danger close. You talk about troops on the ground. I can tell you, having been a JTAC. Having a B-1 bomber overhead with 84, 500-pound bombs is a fabulous arsenal. The first question I asked the B-1, though, was make sure my location is not in your targeting computer because the fracture side had happened in that regard uh, earlier in the war. Sure. So you talk about painful lessons learned, going all the way back to what I'm talking about. If you're going to have, you have time for a phased approach, well, then it's going to look for perfect. And because you're trying to look for perfect, then you're going to start really paying attention to mistakes. And then you're not going to want to make those mistakes anymore because we have created a culture, particularly at upper echelons, where people are more worried about not necessarily doing anything right so long as they don't do anything wrong. Yeah, yeah. And so, therefore, that becomes, uh, as we used to say, so you become so safe that you're unsafe. Yeah. And then you stop taking those risks. You stop pushing. Now, someone right now is already slamming his fist, her fist on the table going, damn, but that colonel, that Marine lieutenant colonel doesn't know a damn thing. He doesn't know what he's talking about. We do this. We do that. I was in charge of X program. Got it. Not here to argue the ins and outs of procurement and how things get fielded, but the numbers don't lie. And the history attached to those numbers from the limited scope that I'm I'm uh, quoting in mm-hmm. not only what I'm talking about now, but also in that article, are are facts.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Factual. So and does that help? It, it, you know, to, it, that, it absolutely helps. Cl- yes. clarify? Is that a clarified answer? Uh,
0: yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. And it um, I it makes me, at least so you were starting to get to my next question too, which was um, your article to me, and again, I'm biased because I agree with you, but to me, it's, it lays out a pretty airtight case. For the value of the A-10. But it makes me wonder then, trying to argue the opposite point of view, who's the enemy? What's the opposition? Is it a certain demographic, numbers people at the Pentagon, uh, Air Force upper echelons that are worried about risk aversion or something? Or is it a mindset? Is it is it that risk averse mindset that you're talking about? What is the enemy that's worth pushing back against and guarding
1: against in this scenario. I, I think it kind of depends on how we define enemy. Internal to, and I'll, I'll just ask you for just so we stream, you know, totally. We can it, this. And, and is it internal to the United States or what? Yeah, are, I, I'm, be, I'm the, being the United I'm States being, military.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm being poetically dramatic. Yeah, it, when I say <laughs> when I say enemy, I mean in this problem set, what is the opposition? What's the counter argument? Where is it coming from? What What are the what? Um, what's the obstacle? Two people seeing what seems to me to be a pretty clear cut rationale for why we need to keep this platform.
1: Well, it's my understanding. It really, it comes down to dollars, you know, details equals dollars, but it's what do you want those dollars to spend? So when you've spent so much money on the F-22 program in the Air Force, and you've got so much invested in it to prove its worth. It's sunk in cost. Is that what it is? You, you, you're, well, it becomes self perpetuating. Yeah. If we just put a little bit more cash into this yeah. thing, it will do X. It's designed to be a dessert topping and a floor wax product. Like it can do it all. The super fighter, it takes on fifth generation. It can do uh, four deployment um, or four deterrence deployments ahead of uh, taking on, let's call them the big two China mm-hmm. and Russia um it is reconnaissance we will be able to prosecute or tout you know the platform is touted as being able to prosecute targets from the highest echelons at least uh, altitude not only for force protection keeping the pilot and the machine safe but also uh, doing on the ground what it's supposed to do the further up you get from the fight the less situational awareness you have which is why the a10 bridges that gap very very well but that requires you know that is that's dangerous it's dangerous to the platform it's dangerous to the pilot let's lose the pilot first to human lives sure um and then you've got to be able to be to employ those things in consonance with the ground scheme maneuver but you got to remember that and this is this is my this is one marine's assessment Mm -hmm. the air force uh is formed shortly after world war ii uh, it is a stunt it, it, at that point in time. It's a staunchly bomber-centric organization uh, from Curtis LeMay and Hap Arnold, who were are pushing very hard for strategic bombing paired with nuclear weapons. So that's the genesis for the B fifty-two, and they pushed really hard on that. We still use the B fifty-two despite sure. having the B one, the B two Spirit, right? The B fifty-two is still out there and still probably one of the most venerable. Uh, you know, and combat-proven platforms we have. It's gotten a bunch of modernization. Nobody's talking about dumping them, but so there's your counter argument. There's plenty of ways that you can make sure that you, you keep things going uh, at the behest. Although we don't have nearly as many B-52 squadrons as we did, but we're trying to. The Air Force is trying to do more with a little less, not a lot less, just spending less money on a smaller fleet of more boutique uh, platforms. So, the A 10 is getting pushed to the side. I mean, there's a huge argument that we made in SOF that, hey, if the Air Force doesn't necessarily want this platform or its programmatics, give the whole thing over to SOCOM. Yeah. yeah. Pilots, yep. ground, you know, all of its infrastructure and everything else and its operational budget, just put it into SOCOM, and SOCOM will then have its own fixed wing direct air support platform to mirror and uh, actually work in consonance with the 160th. What a lethal pairing that would be! Of course, of I course. mean the Marine Corps has already demonstrated they can do it, you know, on a small scale with their air-ground team. Um, and I'm not, I, I, I'm not making, you know, massive comparisons here between how the Marine Corps fights as a MAGTAF, Marine Air-Ground Task Force, mm-hmm. but that's one thing we've done very, very well is understanding how to integrate our air platforms with our ground capabilities and fighting side by side. So that's something that the, the Air Force has largely. Uh, ignored, although they will say they fight very jointly. And in some cases that that may be true. I'm taking this in a in a kind of a a left and right part of the pinball table that we're playing right here. But, sure. but that's that's the parameters from what you're talking about. You know, what's what's the pushback? That's the main enemy is
0: so it's not even cultural. It's not even Air Force specific culture necessarily. Well other like very fighter
1: oriented cool because
0: they're because you do talk about that. Right. Yep. They have been developing the F-22. So they have been sure. putting muscle behind it. So they're not totally averse to cas it's just they're maybe well, not
1: right the, the I, I believe yes, their right. hearts in the right place right they're trying right. to 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 no one's going into this with a deliberate plan to subvert right you know right. A, a capability they're trying. they are indeed saying hey our pilots will be trained to this this is what we will do but it's not going to be as effective so it's one thing to say uh I don't know. You go to your mechanic. Your mechanic changes your oil. He puts in synthetic oil and you get reasonable uh performance out of your vehicle. But if you had your mechanic put better fluids in, better filters, made turnover uh within the engine and improve the performance of your of your overall of your car overall. Well, then now you're actually paying attention to the things that you're trying to get out of it. So to just say, hey, I'm I've upchecked, I've I've done what I need to do right. to make your car run. Comparatively, you are actually getting the same thing. Yes, your car is running on both on both examples, but one is running much much better and much more efficiently because you actually put more time, effort, money into it uh, in the in the appropriate way. Can you get us? And that may be a loose analogy, but that was, that was the no, best no, one no. could come no, up. No, no, with no, no. I, I got you. No, no. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> it makes sense. Um, can you get us smarter on the F 22? Does it require, I, based on what you talk about in the article, it doesn't seem to require the number of JTACs and TACPs, right? That's why they can justify cutting the numbers down. Or does it still require ground coordination?
1: Well, I, I don't see that a safe employment with of cash. Um, can be done without ground JTAX. The biggest problem is okay. the, the reduction of the JTAGs, You know, particularly pushing them to the brigade level, means you have a lot of maneuver units that are having to call to their higher echelons to coordinate. It's like a big government thing. You've actually got to call a central switchboard to say, hey, I need some close air support. And then through cutouts and relays, the pilot finally gets the information and then may get an opportunity to, to actually talk to someone on the ground. But there's an assumption that sort of, they know everything they need to know to, sure. to, to sure. actually drop the bomb. So,
0: I, what I wonder, where I'm going with this, is I wonder if um, if this comes to pass, and I, i I, my, my gut feeling is that this this argument has been made enough, and it just it needs to be people seem to be need to be reminded of it, and then the threat kind of diminishes, and the threat of abolishing the program or getting rid of the platform diminishes it somewhat. And I'm hoping that's what happens here. But what I'm wondering is if this comes to pass, and especially if the JTAC numbers drop off, TACP numbers drop off, does Anglico step up? Does 13 Foxes in the Army step up? Do branches start going, hey, look, we got to increase our capabilities and maybe a whole lot more people are going out to Nellis to get trained as JTACs. It's just not going to come from the Air Force itself. It's going to be other services, bodies, uh, amplifying. Uh, that. I, would,
1: I would think that, that there has to be something that's going to f- fill in the gap. I I believe there's a better partnership, particularly with Air Force ground personnel. Uh, the majority of the JTAC TACPs I worked with were, were special operations guys. Sure, um, that just means an increased level of training. It doesn't. It doesn't necessarily diminish. It is not meant to diminish the overall TACP program because everyone kind of starts as a baseline, sure. and then the, sure. the SOCOM. Uh, budget, et cetera, allows for for a little more advanced training. And and I was trained as a special operations, uh, it's known as a SOTAC, Special Operations Terminal Attack Controller. So, and that's an army-based program that was actually co-founded with the Marine Corps to do exactly what you were talking about during the GWAT, which is increase the number of qualified JTACs that could then get into the spins and and be available in combat. Right. Um, But going back to what we talked about with training, the habitual relationship that the TAC-P is going to have by working within his own uh, tribe, within the Air Force, even though you're using joint fires manuals and and those kinds of things to help speak a common language. Marine trained JTAC working with Marine forces have, have a habitual relationship in such a way that they're not speaking a different service language. So the danger then becomes if you have more people who are trained, yes, to do essentially the same thing, but they've been trained in different methods in schooling, so to speak, and they're working off of not so much different playbooks, because the J JF- Fire is the main thing that everyone's using to prosecute targets and things on the ground, you still don't have sort of that, I speak the same language, we're from the same tribe, and that's the advantage the Air yeah. Force truly, truly has. Yeah. And that, as I said in the article, they make all these arguments for getting rid of the A-10, and it's actually the things that bolsters their requirement. Yeah. Right. and their tax right. fee program. It, it, right. it, it, it's, it is a double negative. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, I, say, I mean, I, I wish I disagreed with you so I could make this a more interesting discussion on it because to me, it's an infallible argument. I, I, don't, I, I have a very hard time seeing a counter argument to it that has much credibility. I would hope based off what you said and the recent developments in CENTCOM that logic and rationality are seeing the light of day and that this the threat of pulling the platform diminishes, um, at least for the time being. And and people kind of get some clarity as to and remember the value that it has as a platform. Um, I want to back up though and take a 30,000 foot view of you and of your career. All right. Um, were you always a writer?
1: I've always been writing.
0: Okay. Uh, From School age, like as a high school kid? grade school kid was writing a Uh, thing that you enjoyed
1: yes and in fact all through my my time in the military i was i i I kept a journal a handwritten journal and just about every deployment and and things that i would do some of it was also a notebook but it was just a great way to organize thoughts um get rid of a little bit of stress articulate kind of how you are feeling. Uh, I go back and I've looked at some of those journals and sort of like well, what was I writing here? What was that all about? <laughs> sometimes there are dates, sometimes there are notes and margins, but a lot of times it's just straight, almost stream of consciousness writing. Um and then from there I I began to really want to capture what I had been doing in some capacity. Uh wasn't sure what I was going to do with it, but I started taking a lot of notes and organizing those notes about seven years ago. And then from there, I just found that I really enjoyed the craft of writing and that there was a lot to know. There was a lot to learn about actually being a, a better writer. I wouldn't, I don't know if I categorize myself as a very good one, but I'm, I'm trying to become competent.
0: Uh, no, so. I, think, I think you're more than competent. And, and especially because it, mm-hmm. you're, you have a great gift of writing personally, but also with a very specific non-fictional bent. At least in the writing that I've seen. Your you know, your your article uh, that you wrote for Warhorse on um, you know, section sixty at Arlington, you know, obviously is incredibly personal and moving and touching, but also has a point to it. Um, you know, it's not merely creative nonfiction, um, not to diminish creative nonfiction, which I personally love, but it's it, there's also um to me, there was something freshing about the fact that you were able to look at sacrifice, show gratitude, humility, et cetera. And there, it seemed to be devoid of resentment, and especially in the wake of the withdrawal from Afghanistan and everything else that had happened in the GWAT at that point. That seemed remarkable to me. Am I mischaracterizing that? Is that, or did I? Or did it, was I accurate in picking that up that you I, don't seem like you carry a chip on your shoulder?
1: About well, first it. that was that's exceptionally complimentary and I had to wonder you know, who you were talking about. So I really I really actually appreciate that very much. Um I uh, I would I certainly have my own frustrations with what happened in August of 21. I think I think all of all of us veterans at that point in time of you know, the GWAT ha- have some sort of resonance or that resonance in some some ways. I, I kind of look at I guess when I went to approach that. I wanted to make it a, a wider reaching, uh longer, have some more longevity in that article than just my feeling of the the service, my service selfishly kind of being bookended by September eleventh and then August of, of twenty-one. Oh. And the the article is indeed an homage to people that I personally knew. Uh certainly some people that I did not, like Sergeant. Uh, nicole G
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and and trying to to look at dare I say a timeliness of what Arlington Cemetery represents, and how it you know of course affected me on a personal level what that why that matters and I you know I, I have a I have an article that, that came out yesterday in the havoc Journal. Uh, Talking about veterans, the transition, and sort of a a history, a brief history, modern history, of kind of how we relate to society, or have related to society, and and I don't want to get too deep into that at the moment, but that ties to the perspective that I, but I'm trying to capture, which is that it is apolitical. This was a this was a national commitment, and levels of sacrifice and what people gave uh that's in some ways very individual but we we bore it as a nation it's up to the nation to figure out how how we 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 learn from that and and this this is a cyclical thing it seems to be you know vietnam and and afterward um and we're we're still sort of think reconciling that the problem is is we've got smartphones and computers and we want to Express ourselves now and get it out of the way and then move on to the next piece. So that's one of the reasons I like to to write things and actually create something that is uh, a written word that's out there. And Rick Rubin, who is, uh, I kind of don't worry about the critics anymore. I used to. Uh, Rick Rubin, who's, who's certainly a very famous music producer, sure. worked for Run DMC and the Avid Brothers. I mean, you talk about two very different <laughs> type right. of musical approaches, but in his mind, he was always looking for the next good sound, the next. The next piece but he wasn't necessarily chasing success and the reason he said that in his book the creative act which is fantastic was success is really not up to the, the artist how something's perceived how someone uh, looks at and enjoys or doesn't a piece of art is at work whether it's written or music etc is not in that artist control particularly after they release it once I press send and I talk to the editors and people say, "Okay, we're going to publish it." At that point, it's out of my hands. And if people liked it, great. And if it resonated, fantastic. And that is the written uh, record that I think I'm trying to to have an impact with uh, through through my voice. That may be the the most the most powerful thing I'm able to do. Going all the way back, we talked about with the A10 piece. Sure, I, sure. I was able to, you know, I felt that was the best way I could could help push uh, a message. And do it effectively for people to consider.
0: Well, and and there is that right. There's the um, there's <laughs> you and I talked about agendas before beforehand off air. So I'll I'll throw that back to you. What's I don't want to be as glib as say what's your agenda, but what's what's the burr in your mind that spurs you to have to write? Is it? Because I feel like it probably isn't just issue by issue. It's not just, Hey, I care deeply about the A-10 and I wanted to write this article. There is that, but I have a feeling it fits into an, a, a greater scheme and a greater narrative and a greater thought process that you want to communicate to both a civilian and military audience. I could be wrong and you can correct me if I am, but is there a, 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 a greater reason? Um, are you writing to understand? Are you writing to vent? Are you writing to remember? What What, Ultimately, do you find drives you to put pen to paper and publish something?
1: Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, uh, So I have three uh, fiction short stories out. Uh, I have an Amazon page, which people can follow me on. Um, But those three fiction short stories, their genesis came from a memoir that I began to write. And then that has turned into a fiction novel that I'm in the process of, well, right now I'm in in the query letter stage, which is where you actually reaching out to agencies to then get you represented. Um, It's a kind of a painful process, but it's necessary. And the fact that I've had people actually request my query letter is, is quite good. Uh, as a result of either stuff that they've read or or the pitches that I've, that I've, that I've given. So, and some have said no, so that that's okay too. So, I mean, I've, I've, it's not going to be for everyone, but ultimately um, I think it is my way of expressing or being expressive about and coming to terms with maybe catharsis. I don't know. Closure. That's not really a good word, but enumerating kind of what I went through and what happened to me. And not only expressing myself in a selfish way, but putting it out there in such a way that someone else might read it and it resonate with them and say, yes, I feel that same way, or I understand where he is coming from, or I don't understand where he's coming from. And I would actually like to learn more.
0: Do you feel like you know, do you feel like that at the end of your writing, you are wiser or more self-aware about your own experiences than you were when you started? Or do you know already? Are you like... Very hip to where your head's at, and like I just want to get this out on paper so people get me.
1: Um, to a degree, yes. Like I have the the objective in mind. Uh-huh. Getting there is sometimes a little more difficult. Um, I'll just say as an example, and I, have, and I have I have writing coaches, I have editors, I have people I work sure. with. I don't do this in isolation. I have some very good mentors. Some of them are, very, are exceptionally successful writers. Uh, some are ghost writers for you know internationally recognized franchises like Tom Clancy, right. uh, Dean Kuntz, um, James Patterson, things like that. So they, they, they've written for, they've got st- structure and story and there's times when I'm stuck, I can say, hey, man, what am I doing here? And they, they'll they they'll help me through that.
0: And that's what you're writing is commercial fiction in that vein?
1: Well, in in, in that particular, in I guess I would, particular case, yeah. I, I would say that in, in a lot of ways, um, I've developed myself, I call, this is my work, my words, into a multidisciplinary writer I can do nonfiction, I can do reflective pieces, I can do research, uh, certainly I'm writing fiction. I'm, I'm focusing on that. It gives me, and I'll get to kind of how I got into the fiction side sure. of it from the memoir side. Um, I was really, I mean, I'm a screenplay. I've got a couple of screenplays written working, you know, of course I finished one just in time for the writer strike to start. Yeah. So that hasn't right. gone anywhere. This is, do you see a trending trend here, Chris? Like, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I, I would say though, that, that all of that is really not only the interest that I have in the project, but kind of what do I, once, once I see kind of what that project should look like or what I think that project should look like, like the end state in mind. So when it comes to the fiction piece, when I started writing the memoir, talking with people who are in the writing industry, the publishing industry, they said, well, the memoirs are are interesting to people who like writing memoirs. But if mm. you actually opened the aperture and got more comfortable with a fictional space, you could perhaps do more than what you're expressing, even though it's valuable, or sure. at least is sure. um, compelling. And I was actually really uncomfortable there because... Um, I value my, I value being authentic. Um, I value a true voice, keeping my, my own voice. And I had to figure out how to do that. And I'm, and I'm still learning that not only to, to go on what you were saying, is it there? Do you feel it at the end? I think there's a feeling of satisfaction. I go back and look at some of my projects and look at some of the things that I've written and I go, oh man, that, huh. that really could have been better. Or, you know, if I ever go to republish this in some other form, maybe I need to sit down with another round of editing, uh-huh. or maybe it could be expanded. Yeah. So uh, I, that's a neat question because I'm I'm thinking about my answers to you as I'm going uh, in an evaluative sense, uh, because honestly, this is the first time someone's really asked me to get in depth about my writing and kind of the, the how's and why. So, uh, you'll forgive me if it's a little bit disjointed. No,
0: no. Listen, no. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to get the first bite at the apple to be able to ask this stuff. Um, tell us about the pieces, because since it was coming from memoir, I feel like once you decided to pivot from memoir, you probably veered towards what your heart really wanted to be saying. So, did you? Does that veer in a? Commercial fiction sense, like I'm going to have a character. This could be a 24 book series. Is that where your mind goes with this piece, or is it contemplative, meditative? You know, your stab at Kerouac. Like, whoa, where did where uh, did your head where did your head go when you feared when you decided to pivot from the memoir?
1: Well, well, let's let's talk about things sort of from the oldest to now the the newest. My first book was called is called The Patrol. And the subtitle is The Story of Mars Socket War. And it tells the story of a Marine Special Operations team operating in the Hellman Valley um, in 2012. And it's about a patrol that goes, is anything but, but routine. Like it it, it sure. starts to unfold in a very uh, very quick and become a much different thing than they anticipate when they go out, even though there's actually an undercurrent of... Uh, obviously danger that everyone's expecting, but you just don't know what's gonna gonna happen I won't won't spoil it from there but that was very much influenced uh, by actual events um that I experienced. Uh, I do have a central character that has now become a narrative character in my novel, but at the time was not who I thought would be at the time I just wrote the the story and Gotcha. The, the central character's name is Steve Keller, you know, being honest, he, he is my avatar. Sure. Uh, although there's very many things about Keller inside of that story that are not me. Um, but you know, for all intents and purposes, I, I had to have a way to package what I was writing and, and, and put it through the eyes of, of a central character. And it is written in the first person for that regard. And some people have reached out to me, people who know me who said, Hey, you know, I was, I was there at that point in time, uh, you know, I don't remember it happening that way. And that's like, well, it is a work of fiction. Like I have taken right. taken some right. pieces from, from different parts and, and turned right. it into a to a narrative. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. So the, then the second so so that was just an addressing of kind of my service as a special operations officer and and one one of the missions and kind of the, the challenges that that we were facing at that point in time and trying to articulate that in a 60-page short story. It was actually very challenging. Uh, but that was a piece that I took out of of that memoir
0: got you got you when did the that sec- come out sorry but uh, before we get to the I'm second sorry. book when did that mm-hmm. come out when did the first one come out
1: i published that in august of 22
0: august so, do you have a website that you're working on
1: uh i don't have a personal one yet uh okay. i am available on amazon you can go to amazon.com and then pull up my writer's page which is ivan f ingram
0: we're going to link to it and all that in the show notes.
1: i-n-g-r-a-h-a-m as in Mike. And, great um yeah, so I cuz like,
0: I'm it. I'm I'm just feeling shamed right now cuz I'm like how the hell did I miss all that when I was researching? So I'm like, yeah, we're going to amplify. <laughs> well, what does those. that say about me? Like,
1: what does that say about me, man? Like, no, no, no. My marketing, it says so. more
0: about me, but I'm like I'm like, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, no, we'll we'll amplify all that. Um, okay, so then the, did you know what the second book was while you were writing the first book? Did you know what was coming next or did it did you finish the first one, Bask in the Afterglow, and then come up with the second idea?
1: Well, I, <laughs> to a degree, yes, it was great to have something completed. And after working again with my editorial team and I'm a self publishing in all three of these. So sure. I, I mean, I then found that I made a lot of mistakes and I met, then found that I had, there was a lot more that I needed to know and learn. And so I, I wanted to take another swing at another story, but I wanted it to be different. I wanted it to be from a different perspective. And I started thinking about this experience that I had had with uh, a group of both female Marines who had served with me, uh, when I was a company commander and they served in a program called the CST, which is a cultural support team, the special operations program, uh, women specific, And, and they served in combat roles. And so, uh, I actually reached out to people who had been members of various CSTs, people I had known who had done, uh, also what's also known as the lioness program in Iraq. And people who had been part of uh, also calls called FETs, female engagement teams, and I wanted to understand their experiences, and I wanted to write something from a perspective and give a voice to something that I don't think has been covered particularly well. Even though Taylor Sheridan's got a sure. very stylized uh, miniseries right now on on TV, um, I wanted this to be a lot. I didn't know that was coming out at the time. But I sure. I, I wanted to write something that was, in my opinion, more true to to kind of their experiences and highlight the fact that, you know, these, these women sacrificed and served in such a way that I I think has been largely ignored. Um,
0: So then what mistakes did you make in the first book that you thought the second one would give you a chance to correct?
1: Well, in the first book, the characters aren't particularly well-developed. Okay. And I mean, there's enough to give you an idea of who they are and how they interact, but you don't get into the depth of background to really help you Identify with. I think that's one of the biggest complaints. Like none of the, none of the characters are particularly compelling. If you like a war story, it's a good war story. But you know, some of my reviews are literally, "Hey, I liked it, but and huh. it, okay. this, there's it was missing this thing that kind of I mean, you understand what's going on, but you don't really get a feeling that the characters um are I don't know familiar, you know, ability to to identify with them. Yeah. Uh, or root for them I mean you root for them because of the way it was written but it's, right, it's right. not it's not the same you're not you're not on this journey with them and so I I really wanted to there's also a challenge for me to say could I grab three characters and develop them in such a way that in a short period of time they would all arc together people would be able to understand their situation. And what they were struggling with, and that the resolution would be satisfying. Mm-hmm. That was a very challenging story, uh, particularly because I'm a male writing from female perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. Which I've gotten plenty of people wag their finger at me. One person told me, "You know that story's bullshit." I'm like, well, <laughs> again, it's based on true events. It's based on real people. Like I did right. interviews with people and 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 my own experiences of the Namaste.
0: But also, what a great what a great writing exercise to then establish character that's what you were trying to get it's like i'm going to write for something that's clearly not me so that i can really go on that journey i, I think that's beautiful how did it, it feel it took me to of, write it? it
1: it took me outside of my comfort zone it was yeah. actually kind of uncomfortable there you want to talk about imposter syndrome in many ways because you're you're, you're giving yeah. a voice to this piece there is a, a litmus of experience that i can put over it but i'm not i i wasn't sure. these women i'm I'm projecting what people told me there are pieces inside of that story of the with the interviews that i conducted um that are woven into sure. the actual experience for these people um i didn't come up with it they, they told me about these and and when i was doing the research i was like my god you know there's so much i didn't know even as a commander yeah. of these of these yeah. of these marines there was so much in an undercurrent that i didn't didn't know it's so, so, fu-
0: it's so funny when you talk about imposter syndrome, because I think we in the community are very susceptible to that. But commercial fiction authors, I feel like, and now I'm not ragging on like the James Patterson's <laughs> of the world, but it's like, they have no experience. And I don't feel like there's necessarily a lot of imposter syndrome when it's like, yeah, I'm going to write about. You know, Dev, or uh, you know, right. some Rainbow Six, or whatever. Like, but you don't have. You know, but the, the, it's funny how the closer you are to the truth, more you feel an imposter syndrome. Whereas if you're completely detached from it, sometimes you just dodge that landmine altogether.
1: Right. And to to, to be fair, uh, I mean, Cl- Cl- Tom Clancy's been been dead quite a while, but right, right. he he did do a, a requisite amount of, of yeah. research to, yeah. to 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 lend uh, some of it. So, you know, some of the complaints of Clancy, uh, God forbid, you know, he doesn't have any fans, which I am a fan of his writing. But right, of course, he's very yeah. technically, you yeah. know, one of the complaints is that he's very technically oriented. And if you're not really into what a Russian submarine does and kind of how it powers through the water, 100 Red October is not going to be your beach read. You're going right. to be like, oh, boy, which is why he had these compelling characters that you wanted to follow along with. And if you could kind of right. get through that, you you would actually like the narrative of this, this neat sort of thing that's going on under the ocean. Um Does that give you does
0: that give you any comfort though to go, hey, if Tom Clancy can get smart on this stuff and write it in good faith, in good conscience, and sleep at night, then hey, I'm allowed to write stories about other people in the military that weren't me without feeling like an imposter. Like I, I feel like sometimes on the community we lay layer that on ourselves because we're so acutely aware of the cultural differences between MOSs, between services and all that in ways that civilians are just free and clear. them I and could do everything in good faith and go, yeah, I was just making it up, or I researched it, but you know, I don't have any firsthand experience, and they kind of relieve themselves of that mental weight. I don't know. Does that make sense? Do you feel any? Does that give you any kind of comfort to think that?
1: It, it does, but that goes back to what I was talking about with authenticity, and that's where I had the biggest problem with stepping away from sort of the, the the underlying narrative in all of my writing. Uh, at least my fiction writing being my personal experience, the sort of timeline of, of things, or at least the, the deepest well that you can reach into to, to pull things out of. Certainly I knew other people who experienced other pieces. I've been told stories by, or had events recounted uh, that I can then pull and put into to different stories. But in the interest of doing that, that was a hard thing to detach myself from yeah. to then create. Like I yeah. talked about those stories. And and so that's, that second book is, is called Athena. And um, it's a great title. I, I think it's, I think it's, it right now it is my, my favorite one of, of my three. Um, and so
0: what, what came next? What was the third one?
1: The third one's called 22. Uh, and that was just, and Athena was published in November of last year. Okay. Um, and 22 was published uh, just this, this spring. Um, 22, a subtitle, A Journey to the Edge of Darkness is, in fact, I think my most important book. So we went from my worst to my best. So I think my most important is our personal opinion, because it addresses uh veteran suicide. And the 22 refers to the sure. average, uh, the su- supposed average of 22 service members uh, taking their lives daily. Yeah. um I think in a lot of ways that supposes that many of them are Afghan or uh Iraq vets and and in some cases that may be true but ironically a majority of people who who are at taking their lives are more senior you know older veterans yeah um it, which is either way it's it's tragic uh but when I first started doing again the research on that I thought huh well I'll probably find all these these young people uh and these statistics and then that that wasn't the case and so I had a a very good conversation with a couple of people regarding, uh, PTS, uh, post, I call it post-traumatic stress coined after my friend, Scott Husing, who, who said we should drop the D. Yeah. And then I also talked to a guy named Dan Jarvis and another guy named Nick Davis, both of whom are run a, a company, uh, or a nonprofit called dot And they, they're trying to get down that number down to zero. They also have a company called the anxiety guys, and they work with veterans and work with first responders and people who are very high stress. Jobs to help sort of uh, off-gas all these these mental blocks and uh, challenges that people are feeling. So again, I started doing research and talking to some people. The the spurring of this was that I talked to a very close friend of mine who said that he'd actually considered suicide. Not that he attempted it, but he was considering it and he had it all planned out and these ideas that he was going through. And I thought, you know, I, I talk face to face with this guy. He sits across from me. And we have beers. I had no idea what he was struggling with. And then I talked to another person, and you start talking to someone else who who actually almost went through with it and stopped themselves. And I thought, okay, I maybe I can do something with this. Again, a complete departure from anything that I've ever written about. It's a structure that I'm not familiar with. Um, Straight nonfiction,
0: I'm assuming. It, it's a, a fiction book oh it's a, a fiction, fiction book okay all, th- wow. all three wow. of these are,
1: all, all okay. three of these are fiction and I uh I, I based the character on uh, on someone and his experiences that I know very well and then um took took it from there and there are some personal anecdotes there's a way that I kind of captured it um in a metaphysical way uh, mm. to be a little more illustrative of, of a journey where someone might be really struggling. And I think the way that I that I captured is uh, I would call it uniquely familiar, because if you've read uh, Charles Dickens or you've you've seen It's a Wonderful Life, you've got sort of this retrospective uh, method through a um, through a guide that that comes to this person and the way that I've that way that I packaged it, I, I, I think. I think people really like that because it's, oh, they're saying, oh, I've seen this in a movie before. I've seen this. Right. This, this is, this is right. interesting how, how this is being approached. I, I did it deliberately. there was, you know, there's there's something to be said for someone else being creative and then taking adaptation. You know, a it a riff. Well, adaptation. and especially
0: when it comes to structure. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That seems to be, um, I'm going to repeat the question I had earlier about this book, because it seems like that might be the most relevant. Did you feel more self aware? Did you learn a lot about yourself or the problem set by the end of the book more than you knew at the beginning of the book?
1: I did. I did. Yeah. Can you talk I think, about
0: it? Yeah. What was it?
1: Well, as I mentioned, the word catharsis, um, I think this book really unlocked uh, some blockages of my own, in my own, in, in approaching my own experience. And you go back to the section 60 piece. Yes, it's, a, it's an expression. Um, it's a it's a compilation of feelings with the people that I that I knew, people that had 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 been killed, people who had, had died in service, and that doesn't actually take up the people killed and hurt in training accidents, sure. post post war suicides, vehicle accidents. You name it; the, the list is is actually quite extensive. And I don't think I really realized how much of what I was writing was actually an extension of of my own experience, even if it was subconscious. And then as that started to open up, I started saying, don't run from this, write more, push push more on this. And the actual thing, Chris, that what, what 22 allowed me to do was open up something that then I was able to apply to my novel, and and take it in a in a very mm. uh, it opened the aperture for the creativity. Interesting, not for a complete rewrite, but right. areas going, wow, okay, you have, you have an opportunity here to become more emotional, uh, uh-huh. emotionally connected. You have an opportunity here to develop this character a little bit more, uh, or dare you say, why is this in here? Like, yeah. does this move the narrative along, even though you like it? Is this is this necessary? And and I don't think that would have happened. Uh, in fact, I know it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't had that opp- those opportunities to really kind of do that. And then when you t- when you pair all that up with the nonfiction. Yes, it's all expressive. Sure. It, it, sure. I, I want there to be, as you said, some emotional uh, connection. I, I want there to be uh, that. The true nonfiction, uh, or, or the nonfiction uh, narrative, uh, would that you could capture it like Capote, right? Where it's just right, you're right, just right. totally engrossed, right? Um, no comparisons there. Someone's like, you just compared himself to Capote. I did no, not. Uh, um, no, but no, but but it's actually it's not an it's not
0: a, a crazy uh, comparison for you because I was just thinking while you were saying that that in something that could be as technically jargon-filled and uh, numbers-driven, data-driven as the A-10 piece, I mean, you start off with an emotional opening, an emotional gambit, initially by saying, look, I'm a living testament to the value of the A-10, and this is why, and this is where we were, and this is why this happened. So there is something about, um, yeah, feathering the emotional connection in through nonfiction that I do think Seems to be familiar territory for you in the writing that I've read. And again, I'm kicking myself for not having seeing these books and reading them I'll ahead send of time. Them to you. You
1: I, got them, well, I got them right here beside me. I'll get. Where, <laughs> i sent
0: them on the way. Okay. Well, where, I, I appreciate where, it. it. I, I I would love. I would. I would be honored and I'd love to read it. But I I want to ask on twenty two, if you had written that as a nonfiction piece, would you have had the same degree of epiphanies and breakthroughs?
1: I doubt it. Yeah. It would it would have been a research piece. It would it would have been very anecdotal, uh, it, almost trying to. Um, I thought about that, it, not, not to write it that way, but I I, I kind of looked at it after the fact because of its title. Would I have been trying to find. Um, there would have been some confirmation bias there, I guess. I would have been trying to find the least number of Afghan and Af- and Iraq war vets to kind of yeah. offset those numbers. And that's that's not what it's about. In fact, I had a, a very good conversation with the with the uh, prolific and well known author uh, Sebastian Younger sure. about his thoughts on, on PTS and kind of th- those statistics. Uh, I had a very good opportunity, a, a fa- an amazing opportunity, about two months ago to meet with him and uh, and a, a man named Brendan O'Byrne. Both of them who factor very heavily in the uh, in the book War which of course influenced sure. the the documentary Restrepo. And I got to talk with them at length about sort of how those books were written and, and their characterization and kind of their relationship. And yeah, that perspective was actually quite interesting because uh, Sebastian, you know, he said, if you look at it and it's in its parts, you know, the numbers are actually staggeringly higher in some demographics and not in others. And he's like, if anything, if we're addressing PTS in the way that the treatment is supposed to be coming, is getting better, uh, those numbers should be going down, not up. And and that's what's kind of the most disturbing part. And so for me, I wanted to, to capture. This, I'd already written the book at that point, right. but I inadvertently wanted to capture that there were better, there were other options. Like there, there's a way to help help your way out of this. And uh, and it's interesting that, that I guess younger and I were coming to the same conclusion, independent of each other. Um, what is the way out? I think veterans need to forgive themselves. I think uh, I think veterans are 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 dying of shame. I think they feel ashamed. I think they're having a really I think really tough times with looking at their service and trying to see um, extended value. Like what was it all worth? Even in their advanced age, especially in their advanced age, if they survived a lot or they saw a lot of combat. Then they're really trying to figure out, you know, what was this all about? What did it matter? Why did I lose all of these people? I mean, there was a one of the special operations units that I was um, fascinated with growing up and 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 liked was a MACV Sog, sure. it's a special operations group, um, so a, a very short-lived unit, but I mean, I just Vietnam specific, busy. right? Yeah, it was right. just a and couple and of only years, only for about there. four or five years. Yeah, yeah. like fifteen medals of honor and a disproportionately high casualty rate. Yeah. compared to the numbers of people engaged. Now of course you know that the, what they inflicted on the enemy and what they did you know you you could argue back and forth but in in their later years those veterans are now looking back going you know what why did i have to lose five of my friends over this course of time you know, what what did we really gain from all of this? And i think there's that's coming around on the on the afghan and and iraq side and has been for for quite a while and for me as a career military officer i mean that was all i knew. But all i all i knew in my adult life was serving and then i served in special operations and i and i spent the majority of my career with that sometimes at the at the absolute highest levels and you, you know w- once you've served there and you're kind of looking at what you're doing i talked to a guy who or who you've done i talked to a guy who served in vietnam recon marine in vietnam and i asked him how he made sense of some of his uh of his service and he wasn't a career guy he did he did you know four years mm-hmm. And he said, "Ivan, you have to just say, uh, realize that you you served honorably and did the best you could, and the rest of it was out of your control." And so I think the way out is for people just to, to take a breath and forgive themselves and give themselves a little bit of grace. And we're not doing that, and society's not doing that. We're losing sight of how to interact with each other, and uh, and I allude to that in, in my most recent article. But um, yeah, I think that's kind of a you know going back to what you're talking about is my reason why I write is I. I Maybe I do want to bridge that gap. I want people to, to read and, and question and understand and uh, or question and, and ask questions to understand um, and look to, un- to to identify with things that that make sense to them. Like you don't have to have been the board of experience trauma. Maybe you can understand that together and talk through certain things. And mine is not more important than yours. But you know this all of the stuff that I am writing have really contributed, you know to my to my novel. Uh, which is titled Troops in Contact and um, for a very specific reason. So
0: Do, possible, but. No, no, this is... Um, I, I want to stay on this because this is, I think, important on multiple levels and been something that we've talked about on the show in the last couple of weeks too, a bunch, because uh, I think this... I think it's an incredibly important message. Do you think the GWAT's been worth it?
1: Um, a layered... That, that's a layered answer, I, I suppose. People forget about how scared, how terrified this country was on September 11, 2001. And I remember it vividly. Yeah, um,
0: Were you in then? Were you in the Corps? I was,
1: I was. I joined the Marine Corps in 1997. I had only planned on serving for four years and then I was going to go be an FBI agent or a federal marshal. I was going to get into federal law enforcement in some capacity. Um, and so... I was on my way out. I had not dropped papers. I was not leaving, but I at that point I was really coming up on my, you know, the end of my hitch, if you will. And I was examining what my options were. Uh, and then when September 11th happened, that sort of changed everything. It changed the aperture, changed the world in a day. And I said, "Well, I should probably stick around because this is this is what we signed up for."
0: Were you excited? Were you excited? Were, I mean, and, and I don't mean that in some perverse way, but I mean, were you just like, did it? Not just give you a second wind, but to suddenly cement a purpose and go, hey, this wasn't just peacetime service. This wasn't just my stint in the Marines. This suddenly, holy crap, this is the game. This is the super. Bowl. Yeah, we, this we, is what we trained ab- for.
1: Absolutely, we had nothing to compare it to. Um, let's remember that George Bush said that you know there was this access of evil in Iran and Korea. We thought, are we going on a two front war? Like, is this tonight? Or we we didn't know what any of that meant. Um, then. The cynic in me says there was, you know, we started out with good intentions, uh, which got followed up with some bad ideas that became worse courses of action. And then we stretched ourselves too thin and did not ever follow through to finish. And so to say, is it worth it? What did this country really want? They wanted to feel safe. They wanted to feel secure. And then once that became commonplace, it sort of was like, well, why are we still over there? And I don't know if we ever could quite define that. Because if it was, we would have very clear goals about what we were doing in in Iraq and and Afghanistan, never mind what happened in 2021, which is is unforgivable. But let me just say we had almost five presidential administrations to, to solve the problem. Chris, so was it worth it? Um, I think that depends on who you ask. In, in in the industrial side of America, someone made a lot of money off of all this stuff at a very small cost to 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 its you know existing force. Um, to the psyche, uh, to the American veteran and people you know put their put put their name on the on the line. I think that's an individual struggle. I think it's another thing we're kind of people are wrestling with is, you know, where are we right now? Yeah. What what are we doing?
0: Yeah. I um, I don't know if you heard. I mean, I didn't read the three books, so you don't have to have listened to this episode from a couple of weeks ago, but (laughs) I, I was, I was using, we had a last minute cancellation. So I'm used on, on uh, the psychological damage that I think happens in the veteran community. If we think we have been in an unjust war or something that wasn't worth it, and that that's a frequently underreported or under commented on aspect of PTS, suicide, veteran suicide, whatever, is um, the self flagellation that uh, we were in the wrong, that the wars weren't worth it. I you know, I was at 9 11, I was at the Trade Center when that happened that day. Um, that day changed my life immeasurably. I have, I, and as I say in the episode, I'm, Convinced we did the right. It was right for us to do what we did. There were many mistakes that were made, which I think is par for the course in war, and that doesn't excuse anybody or let anybody off the hook. That's just my personal view. Um, My the only reason I bring that up now is it. I think you summed it up so beautifully of how powerful an enemy shame is in the veteran community, and. When we talk about, you know, my friend Scott Mann, who I worked with um, in Pineapple when we were working the Afghan evac piece. Sure. Yeah. Um, you yeah, know, I, I he, actually
1: don't personally know him, but we've, we've corresponded. Oh, have you? Yeah. yeah I, I, mean, I, I have his book and, and I've corresponded with it. I've enjoyed his conversations with him.
0: Good. I'm glad you two are connected because he's, um, you know, a great guy. I, I just couldn't have more respect for him. But he's so great on always checking in and just going, hey, it mattered. Remember, it mattered and um
1: yeah I, I don't think it i think there's a difference between did it matter or was it worth it, I, it good and, point and, talk about that yeah what do, what do you think is the difference between those two well, well i think i think service is is a thing I, I i talked to a federal veteran of mine who said you know i wouldn't i wouldn't join today's military i wouldn't be a part uh. of this anymore and i you know but that's an old song yeah we, we, we've been saying you know that happened during the american civil war you had people who were anti-unionists. You had yeah. people who were yeah. Confederate. You had people. You know, I wouldn't serve on the side of Lincoln. Yeah. You know, flash forward to Vietnam. One. Yeah. Oh, we, we, World War One.
0: Absolutely. Had people yes. World War
1: Two. Yeah. You, you, people. Yeah. You get plenty of people who were dodging the draft and didn't want to serve and and made sure that they were 4F. You know that was the, the yep. designation that you couldn't you couldn't go into combat.
0: Well, an American firsters.
1: I mean, Charlie. You know, got themselves. Yeah. Got themselves right. that designation early. Then you had you know draft deferment. I wouldn't serve for this country. It's this, that, and the other thing. You, you serve for the nation with the big N. You serve for democracy with the big D. The republic on, with the big R. I am not being jingoistic, which means hey, I'm approaching but, the Ameri- you know, America as a patriot, regardless to a point of you know violence uh, or of of having to, to to you know my country right or wrong. Not the case. We, we we have plenty of mistakes, as you said, but the idea that the country. And, and, and serving it is is not worthwhile. Is I think narrow. I, I think it's very much worth serving. I think there's a lot of things that are happening inside of the military structure that needs to be ironed out. But writ large, that, that the the uh, institution is you know our country and, and its institutions are, are worth um, you know doing some time for. And that, that's just an opinion.
0: Can but I, can I to your point, yeah sorry yeah sorry go ahead. But,
1: but but to your point of you know was it worth it. I think that kind of remains to be seen. And what I mean by that is everyone's gonna hang the economic problems on whatever whatever best suits their uh, source of blame.
0: Uh, so yeah,
1: you know what? you' You're, you're gonna hook it on whoever is you believe caused the thing to be yeah. where we are. That's my apolitical down the middle. Everyone now needs to do the deductive reasoning. What's he talking about? Um, <laughs> but no, that's true. Yeah, there, there's plenty of that to go around. So, if you were looking for the economy, well, I guess we're not there. If we're looking for our sense of of feeling safe and and protected, I think we've met that. I, I think that that we're we're gonna we, we've got different things to worry about, but the that sense of security that we enjoyed from the middle 1990s to that day in September of 2001, September 11th you know, that innocence is gone. Yeah. And so now we've got a different vigilance. You know, we've we've become more dependent on our surveillance as much as we value our freedoms. Yeah. You know, that you can't have it both ways, but you're going to have to figure out how. So I guess that, I I, I think that, that check is still out there. you still figure out how to write it, but you you were going to say something. No.
0: um, Do you think we're done with Afghanistan? Do you think it resurrects itself in some way, shape, or form in our foreign policy in the near future or even medium future?
1: Um, I, I don't. I don't see how we could actively be involved with them anymore. And and I, I just. Do you think they could diamond. be involved with
0: us, though? Do you think there's problems that are germinating there that could still that we we might have heard, not heard the last of this? We don't have. Well, I, I or think great... it's, it's, it's,
1: it's yeah. not nothing to turn you back on. Yeah. I, mean, I definitely, you know, remember how it how it manifested itself. This is a country that that its currency is warfare. Yeah. Whenever it needs to get you know a boost, it creates. It, it finds a way for the world to come visit it and create mm. something, a problem. It yeah. is self perpetuating. But you know they're so diametrically opposed currently in their the way they they govern their treatment of, sure. of women. Sure, and you know, just they're. They, the fact that they've taken such a huge step backwards despite the fact they had everything available to them to be uh, a functioning member you know there's something to be said for recognizing the taliban on the international uh stage so late in the war as we did when in 09 and 10 we had them on the ropes they were ready to, they are yeah. ready to yeah. we let up the gas yeah. we did and yeah. i was there when we were doing it big time so you hit first an unclenched fist. We 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 stopped too yeah. early. And then yeah. in, as the French found in Algeria, when the FMLN were recognized by the United Nations as the primary legitimate political party of Algeria, and not the French government, they lost. Yeah. Street Without Joy, Alistair Horn, Savage Wars of Peace. Those are two great books to go take a look at. Uh just to, yeah, I actually th- think *Savage Wars of Peace* with with Al Horn and then *Street Without Joy* uh, also worth taking a look at for the the, the feeling, you know, the of the, uh, the transition from the French, to the American involvement in China. But what's I, old is new man. again in a lot of ways, and we 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 turn our back on those old hotspots at our peril. We need we definitely need to keep a thumb on them. It's the whole reason the Central Intelligence Agency exists, and and I can tell you they, you know they they've got their pulse. They got their finger on the pulse of what's going on to maintain um, situational awareness.
0: I, w- I want to ask you because you're presi- perfectly positioned, I think, to answer this. Um, how damaging was it that we consistently messaged that we would be leaving any minute from Afghanistan, as opposed to saying, hey, we're here till the job's done? But that even when we surged in the same breath that we surged, we were saying, it's only going to be for 10 minutes and we're going to be getting out of here. Do you think that was damaging? I I do obviously, but, but I'm wondering if you saw it that way.
1: Remember, remember who we were saying that to, we weren't saying it to the enemy. We're broadcasting that to our, to our people. We're broadcasting it to our people. That it was only going to be for so much time and that you would only have to, you know, it's only going to cost this much. It's only going to take this long. So of course, the enemy at that point is like, all right, I'll just wait that out. Yeah. Um, If it's going to go on time immemorial, then you have to figure it out. But, you know, there's a reason we're leaving. We live peacefully in Europe with nearly 60,000 people deployed there. Right. And we don't have, you know, quaint little bases the same way in Iraq and Afghanistan, even though Lashkar Gah means little America. Yeah. It was set up to house, you know, the American university staff living in South Central Helmand. Very weird to drive through a place that actually has American looking houses in it and you know, cross cut canals. But you know, that was the whole point. You know, they had a vision, we've had a vision for these things, and it just doesn't take hold. And part of that has to do with the population not wanting it. You want to read an excellent book about that? Uh, The Ugly American, it is a fictional account of America and the French in the 1950s in a thinly veiled country that, uh, closely mirrors vietnam
0: right and right. the tenants
1: in there for po- foreign policy and, and how people interacted as as clear today uh as it was written in the 50s do you think and, and I, people didn't I, know they were going to get such an education today man. no 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 oh
0: <laughs> listen I, i'm not so sure I, th- I i i i'm thrilled that they are and that i am and i think this is I don't want to waste this valuable opportunity to, to talk through some of this stuff. I remember I actually never read the ugly American. I saw the movie, Michael Caine and Brendan Fraser did it mm-hmm. 20 mm-hmm. years ago, I think. And I saw it and I remember Encino I think,
1: man,
0: in, <laughs> man, right. Yeah. For the whale. Right. Uh, He's he a very off, underrated.
1: Act. In fact, I would love to have him in one of my films. If he has oh, really? Yeah. News. Well, there you yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. I
0: think this is great. the opera. Okay. Good. The, the, the call's been made. Um, so, I, I remember that movie came out actually shortly after, I want to say, the invasion in Iraq. And I felt like that was very much deliberate on the producer's part to to think that that was a timely release. Do you think, my in my experience, and, and I want to know how this differs from what you saw. In my experience, Afghanistan, if they could have voted amongst themselves, would have become the 51st state in a heartbeat. The problem has always been their neighbors and the amount of influence that their neighbors have that destabilizes it. Constantly rips them apart into different tribes. Constantly makes it impossible. It's hurting cats to try to get any sort of form of consensus. Am I off base with that? What did you see? How was no, it from I, I your think, point
1: of view? I, I think I, I think you are correct. And and I there, there, there's two parts to that. One, it's hard to grab a tribal society and and throw Jeffersonian democracy at it and say, okay, you, you know, make it work. Um when we put uh, Karzai in there, he was not the best fit, but he was the one that worked best for us. Again, we, we, we're very selfishly oriented in a lot of this. Much like Bremer in Iraq when he disbanded the Bath Party. On one level, that was a great move. On the other, you took away, you disenfranchised this entire part of your population. Right. And you took away anyone who had any central idea about how to actually run a country inside of a broken infrastructure. I know that sounds counterintuitive but
0: because the, they wanted a pashtun right they were like we need a pashtun and this is the best absolutely. We well, that's, that's
1: the tribal majority yeah. but even within that they're they're divided they're divided so they, you're sure. not gonna you're sure. not gonna find it's, it's like grabbing someone from the south and saying hey okay he's going to be very popular uh in the northern part of america and then vice versa or someone from the midwest you know or, right what have you geographically right. regionally you're going to have people who protest Bottom line, though, is that you know, Ghani was uh, or Karzai was was our man, mm-hmm. and really designed or put in there by design for us to uh, be able to manage slash manipulate that country in in the interest that that we had. We you know we, we had this idea of what we wanted to have happen, but then the affectation of that became very convoluted, particularly with with Iraq as a distraction. We didn't finish uh, Afghanistan as quickly as we should have. It was a small War. It was a special operations war. It could have, could have. I won't say easily, but with the right management, you know, any alliance, the right alliances could absolutely smooth it out and let them manage good enough, right? Not, not the way we wanted, but acceptably, so that they could make things work. Um, Um, Because the Afghans would figure it out. But here's, here's the salient point to all this. When I, when I was a Marine company commander, was based in the West. And I was responsible for an area that was larger than the state of West Virginia and included in that were a bunch of provinces. So I was connected with and in many ways uh, an advisor to the provincial governors uh, in Herat and Farah uh, and um, Shindam provinces. And I would go around and I would I would I would meet with them fairly regularly, not to tell them what to do, but to get a pulse on kind of what's going on in your Sure. What's important to you? What are you struggling with? What are your people telling you? Because we couldn't do it all as, as special operations guys. Uh, we were there to, as I say, get violence down to a manageable level that that could be just kind of kept where it was supposed to be. You're never going to eliminate this. Right. And when I spoke with the, so in Iraq you've got a lot of farsi influence because it's right next. I mean, the, the entire Iranian border there, but it's the closest Iranian border crossing, and even the signs are in in yep. in uh, Pashtu. Afghan, uh, and in Farsi up, up in that area. So they're bilingual, multilingual, uh, and kind Korea, of homogenous, the, yeah. the border just is what it is, right? They understand yeah. that, but they're very kind of, um, should say say, heterogeneous, they've got just people kind of move, moving, all the way, you know, back and forth. And, and they kind of just, that's how they exist. It was not unusual for someone, especially someone who may be talking, he's like, well, he's in Iran today and he'd be coming over the well, way. You had to keep that in mind if he was right. talking right. one day. Right. I was talking to the with the provincial governor in Farah, and one afternoon I said, "What well, you know? What's important to you? What's what do you have going on?" He said, "Well, you all in America are very fortunate because you don't have two countries on either side of you who meddle in your mm. affairs." Yeah. And what he was referring to is he had Iranian people in Farah province uh, or Herat uh, province, uh, Farah. Gosh, I'm getting ever older. This in Farah province who were causing problems for him, and he also had. Three Pakistani ISI agents who were running their own campaign of subversion and problematics, and I actually interviewed one of them, which was interesting. Overtly, so, well, like like he
0: he was known. Like was he identifying yeah. himself as an ISI agent?
1: Well, he didn't so much come out with his credentials, okay. but I, you yeah, know, we we knew who he was. Yeah. And, I yeah. mean, he he wasn't too. Too secretive, right? Like, oh, yeah, 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 right. Um, but he was savvy, I'll say that, and had done his research. He knew where this guy was not just stumbling around, like, he yeah. was there for a very yeah. specific reason. very in his interview with me, I mean, it was like it was a meeting, but his interview with me was really more of an assertion of, you know, who is he dealing with? Yeah, not trying so much. Names. Like, oh, yeah. here's what we're we'll trying to work together. No way, yeah, it was strictly one sided. Um, at least I tried to. I tried to make it that way, and he was better than I thought. So uh, you get to talk to a real <laughs> live loser today, Chris. Because <laughs> that was. Uh, listen,
0: that's an uh, uphill fight. No, I mean that's a savvy, yeah. savvy, savvy. Threat. Yeah. So, with yeah. The,
1: but but this is the central governor inside of this. This. Yeah. I mean, he he's reporting directly to the uh, the, the, the government. You know, seat of yeah. Kabul, and he he even knows what's going on inside of his. Not that he was a fool. None of these guys were, were stupid, but he 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 knew what was happening inside, and he's like, "This this is what I'm dealing with here. Unless you can find a way to really kind of get that out of yeah. that meddlesome uh, those those interlopers out of our our internal affairs, we have to contend with that before we can actually deal with our own stuff, and that's the biggest problem we have." So, so yeah, I'm, that's that, that's yeah. on the ground. What was happening yeah. is that the, the question that's
0: fascinating. Asked. That's fascinating, and I I want to ask. Um, I'm I'm cribbing this a little bit from Steve Cole and Ghost Wars, but how much how much in your experience do you think Kashmir played a role in Pakistan's meddling in Afghanistan? The way I always conceived it, and I was willing to be talked out of it, but all I ever saw substantiated this that there was a vested interest to have. For the ISI to continue to nurture this junkyard dog of the Taliban so that they could continue to generate a potential force, a fifth column that could go to Kashmir, that could continue to go against India. And that we were part, we looked at it through the lens of terrorism. But for Pakistan, they're looking at it through the lens of them versus India. And we always misinterpreted that, that we thought this is all about us and terrorism. And they're thinking this is all about us and India. And because we didn't always close the loop on that, We sometimes misattributed the motives, the aspirations of the ISI and their willingness to be a friend to us because we weren't looking at how important Kashmir was and how important the destabilization of India was to Pakistan. Am I overstating that? What what was your take on that?
1: Well, I, I think that it was in Pakistan's interest to keep the Taliban moving because Afghanistan is a fabulous buffer state between Iran and Pakistan and our interest in keeping Pakistan placated as you're dealing with India is that they're both nuclear powers.
0: 100%. Yes. we don't. Yes. You know,
1: so there are a lot of things with Pakistan that we're probably willing to subjugate or ignore. Uh, but I mean, they house bin Laden for God knows how many years before yeah. we finally roll them up. Right. I mean, and oh, what, what was he doing there? Oh, that's a great question. How about that? Well, that's weird. Uh, anything else you guys need? Because we're opening our airspace yeah you know at least yeah. we can do sorry yeah yeah, yeah. so um, well and i let,
0: let me caveat what i said before the yeah. reason i say that is because the the most nervous i ever saw certain pakistani entities is when indian entities were entering afghanistan oh. and it was like oh they are so scared shitless about getting you know sandwiched now between two indian friendly you know india and and a friendly afghanistan
1: my 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 uh, my opinion on Kashmir, for what little I know about it, because it is it is a UN monitored, you know, it is an active combat zone monitored by the UN. It, it, it's sort of like the Mongolia, if you will. It's that, it's that, that in, inter-area between two very aggressive powers where they can kind of just get it out of their system. The Russians and the Chinese are the same way. I mean, they fought uh, a huge yeah. war in Manchuria prior to yeah. World War II yeah but now it's just a matter of all right well if we want to just blow you know blow off some steam and test out weapons let's just go up into these two areas and we'll just get it done and you know it's it's, it's expected it's a
0: safety valve it, yeah.
1: Right, yeah it keeps blow everything contained steam. it's a containment piece that's that's my opinion do they need the taliban to go in there and fight with them no the Pakistanis have a fairly well organized military they're as i said a nuclear power it's much more in, much more interested to keep afghanistan destabilized for the simple fact that they would rely upon them for money supplies and in the long game keep iran away from them but How that, inter- that How is one yeah that is one retired dudes no know, no no that's of a geopolitical I, Maybe I, start I love in this kind of stuff. Man. Well,
0: that, that, that's what I was about to ask. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I don't want to poke the bear too much, but how much does geopolitics interest you? Because you have been privileged to see and have a lot of first person contact with a lot of interesting people in interesting places it, with an interesting dynamic. Um, does that turn you on at all? Or, or do you like going now that you now does the writer, Ivan, like going more internal and starting to find the characters the stories that are personal more than geopolitical
1: i i like them tied into that that framework okay and in fact i have an espionage trilogy that i'm working on um, that ties directly into what you're talking about beautiful in the larger context of geopolitic geopolitics it's it is fascinating um but the people working you know behind the scenes, that ISI agent, those, those, those people fighting at the young, at the, at the small level, uh, heck that the fighter that gets recruited, that doesn't know what it's, what he's involved in, but is being paid handsomely to continue doing certain things. Um, not knowing that they're a pawn. Meanwhile, someone working for first world country, not believing they're a pawn. Um, yeah, I think there's a great way to get extremely cynical and still, have a have commentary yeah. on 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 current events. Uh so that was also another manifestation of some of the writing I've been doing. She started of cracking open this this um this shell, the self self-imposed shell. Yeah. So like, I'm only going to stay with this and this is the direction I'm gonna write. You know, I talked to 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 several writers and they said, hey man, you've got more in you than this, but you we're gonna tell you how to write this. We're gonna tell you what to do. But what if you took it this way what if you started Mm. like looking at this in in different different methods and then the the process is not an easy one that's for sure chris i um i try and write at least uh, treat it as a job five days a week a minimum of a thousand words a day which sounds like a lot sometimes that's a struggle Sure. Sometimes it comes. Sometimes you're like, "Wow, I really got a lot done today." And sometimes it, it runs in spurts, uh, but you do have to take take time off of it. But I mean, I've I've got you know,
0: notebooks, hmm. all kinds of yeah, notebooks
1: yep. and stuff. You know, I are you of, writing by hand? Uh, no, I, I write on a computer. I take okay. notes, though. I mean, it okay. comes in my head. Those are
0: the notes. Uh, okay. Right. Yeah, I'll
1: scribble it down. Um, no, that would be okay. a very I was like <laughs> John John Lacari way to write. Like he did it all on legal pads with yeah. pencils. I'm like, whoa. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. That'd be That's amazing. Crazy. No, I couldn't
0: do it. <laughs> did you ever, um, did, just talking about the verisimilitude of, that you could bring to some of the characters and some of the situations, did you ever capture in your journals specific lines of dialogue or specific phrasing or things like that? Did that ever tickle your writer mind and go, God, I've never heard it put that way before or something like that just because of the people you're talking to?
1: Yeah. Uh, that It's interesting because they talked about how corrupt the afghans uh and the iraqis were so you just you know these guys are you know what i'm not sure they were any worse than our own politicians we just might be better dressed and you you listen to to some of the, the same complaints that they had over there and you could, you could hear that in middle america just in a different different statement and you know when you look at sort of maslow Pyramid of need. Yeah, yeah. It is indeed universally the same. Yes. it's just sort of yes. the wisdom, as you said, that some of these, these you know, some of very uneducated people would have for, for the, the perspe- perception of the lives that they live.
0: I think it's the trickle down too. Yeah, I think like at the top human, there might be equal, nature piece. Yeah, there might be equal levels of corruption at certain points at the top. I think the difference with afghanistan is that it trickles all the way down to the lowest level so every fucking clerk is looking for a handout as opposed to here you don't have to bribe the postman to get your mail delivered but there it's like the corruption's just endemic now no it's it's
1: it's it's part of it's part of doing the you know so opium and drugs huge were a huge problem in afghanistan it's it's also one of their one of their their trade pieces and i just it's just popped into my head so we're in this village and uh, I looked out at these these fields and I was <laughs> was there with a guy from USAID who, you know, very respons- responsible yeah. for uh, helping. they were converting crops, right? They're yeah, trying to help, convert help, crops. Yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, they had, yeah. we had USDA people there who were helping with yeah. their livestock. We had, you know, it, a very kind of alphabet soup yeah. group of. Of American civil servants that I never expected I was going to work with, but there they were. And they all got their idea of what they're going to do. And so we go to this village and start talking with the elder. And through USAID and our interpreter, he asked the elders, what what do you all grow in this, this field? And he goes, Oh, and that one it's opium and our poppy. And then that one is 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 ganja It's pot. Yeah. And uh you get to another discussion, and he said, Well, Why don't you grow wheat? Why why couldn't we get you to grow, you know, a a more, uh, well, a a less intrusive crop, right? Or less less offensive crop.
0: Less disruptive, yeah. Yeah. Right, right. right. And
1: so he said, well, why would we do that? This is way too profitable. So there's another thing we never figured out was for yeah, the right. amount of money that we actually can spend on this stuff. We were looking at it in the American, world. we would never pay an American in this much money for, for cotton. First of all, we should be paying the American that much money for cotton. And we could have absolutely pay the Afghan, whatever he was making, maybe twice as much on the drugs to make them stop growing it. But we didn't want to equate it that way. Right. It was too much like, oh, we'll just, we're buying drugs. Yeah. We're missing the point. The whole reason yeah. for them doing that was to, to generate income and- to keep some of these bad actors off their back, so I eventually had a conversation away from the CIA guy when I was talking to the, because now I was mining for information. I was like, "So who do you sell these drugs to? I mean, are you tied in?" He goes, "Oh, if you're, if, Commander Ivan, if, if if you're if you're implying that you know I work with the Taliban, he goes, I don't work with those assholes. I got like legitimate people here. Don't worry about that. I'm, I'm you know, we're on the same team." Just sort of like, let me grow my drugs. I'll do my thing. Yeah. Promise you the bombs, you know, the bombings are not going to happen on this road and we're all going to be fine in this valley. But don't yeah. ask me who I'm dealing yeah. with. Is that cool? And I was just sort of like, okay, I get it. I'm a streetwise kid from Washington, D.C., but uh, this ain't how it's supposed to look. Like, you know, like, yeah. we are the good guy. Like, yeah. all of a sudden your cape wasn't flowing anymore. It just kind of hung low and you were a superhero. You're just like, damn it. Like, okay. And yeah. Well, so, that's why we
0: didn't support Massoud initially right well, because exactly. he was he was and dealing he was heroin best, no. he, was, he was the best heroin dealer out there but yeah, he also yeah. was you know northern alliance yeah it's it's so convoluted so complicated i'm going to ask you and you can you can plead the fifth on this but um cuz it's it's an unfair question <laughs> you're president in let's put you in 2004 what do you do in afghanistan how do you how do you make afghan what changes if you had to make one change, three changes, something simple. What is your global prerogatives that you would take to change the outcome in Afghanistan?
1: I tell my cabinet to give me undeniably concrete proof of what's going on or what they're telling me is going on in Iraq.
0: You think if we just kept our eye on Afghanistan only not yep. gone to Iraq we would have been fine. Yep. We would have,
1: have been over pretty quickly. We had pretty much gotten things, you know, on a, on a even keel or at least playing things out. So things are just moving yeah, long.
0: Yeah.
1: And we could have given our full attention to whatever we wanted to call stability inside of Afghanistan and kept things moving forward.
0: So by the time by the time Obama promised the surge or, or promised, I mean you know initiated the surge, you think we were it was a lost
1: cause already. At that Why point? did we need a surge except that we were fighting a two front war? What what's the what's the line? What you the think, you think we never get involved in a land war in <laughs> Asia?
0: Right, right, right. <laughs> so do you so but you don't think there was any salvation at that point? Like at that point, the die is cast. We we could not have pulled that. We could not have done we could have closed the loop in afghanistan in a satisfactory way as early as 2009 2010
1: well no we could have we let up the gas we, okay. we actually had the opportunity at, at that was our that was our midpoint
0: so there were a couple of benchmarks basically we we could have yep. done something in 2004 yep. better fidelity in iraq we had another chance in 09 10 9
1: 10 11 we 10, 11. absolutely had the taliban on the ropes yeah um, and, and could have finished them off and, and they needed to be finished off. But, I mean, Dave Cocullen in his book, The Accidental Guerrilla, uh, I, I had an opportunity to speak with him at length um, a number of years ago. Uh, you know, we we're talking about counterinsurgency. It's absolutely about not alienating the populace. Ab- very adamant that you don't create war insurgents, that you you try and stay within the framework of what you're, I mean, it's a very complex, your counterinsurgency is a very complex uh, way to fight a war. Uh, or, or just be engaged in in any sort sure. of combat, but he did ignore the, he did not ignore the fact that there comes a point in time where you have to make a decision on what you're going to do with that insurgency. Are you going to contain them, or are you going to defeat them to a point where they cannot reconstitute, they cannot become anything again to cause problems? And if you decide you want to contain them. You then get into negotiating and, and political identification. Um, in many ways, uh, this is what's happened with the FARC in Colombia. They're, right. they're still around. They're just not right. nearly as violent, as bad as they as they used to be. They're, don't misunderstand. They're still sure. very right. Right. violent narco-terrorist organization. They're a Marxist terrorist organization. Um, but in this case, we needed to defeat the enemy so badly. That they just would not consider doing this shit again. They'd be like, okay, that's it. It's over. Because when we launched our first raid on the heels of September 11th into Afghanistan at the Tarnak Farms, where we thought yeah. that uh, right outside of Kandahar, and I've been there, where we thought um, Osama bin Laden was. When we launched that raid with the Rangers jumping in and just, you know, yeah. just, and it was, they, it was a very successful raid. They absolutely did what they Went in there to do was destroyed and you know yeah. it was it was a kill capture they were trying to catch it but they did they didn't you ran a toward at that point and we lost them but uh the radio intercepts after our, our troops were extracted and they flew back is if the Americans can touch us here God help us huh that was a huh. respect
0: yeah that is
1: right so it's those types of things that you just got to be like hey you do this you do this again we're coming back it's it's kind of like streetwise thug behavior i just beat your ass do this again i'm going to come back and beat you again do it again and you know is are you you want to keep doing this but we we just we let up that's my opinion
0: no listen i um
1: we did not give them the battlefield defeat they so soundly needed
0: i i hesitate to ask this because i i think i know what the answer is and i'm not Trying to just rip open old scars, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Just aren't, we, aren't we pretty deep into that by now? I, I, I probably <laughs> probably are. I think I think we've, we've we've spilled enough at this point. Yeah, yeah. So, in the wake of the withdrawal, when we saw the Taliban, um, you know, picking up our weapons, having Anasoc helmets and body armor, crying tears of joy, stunned that they had won. And then you go back and hear that radio intercept in your mind. Um, Is there a better emotional response we should have than just to be outright pissed off? Is there a wiser way of thinking about this?
1: I don't know. I, I, I think the problem with being as pissed off is that you go going all the way back to what we were talking about. You know, was it worth it?
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. It, there's an investment there, not just monetarily. There's so much tied up in that. You know, my a lot of my military, my 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 adult identity is is, is part of it is in twi- intertwined with a conflict. Um, again, something that's just taken me a little bit while a little while to unpack to kind of understand just how deeply affected i was or how that how my service there affected me um i was peripherally i'm I'm not making any claims at all to being involved in pineapple peripherally involved with that because i had people reaching out to me sure we all knew somebody saying i've been you are connected with people. Can you help me? I've got this guy. He's you know he, in real time. I'm trying. I she's trying yeah. to get to Abigail. He's yeah. trying to do this. Now we're all on Signal. We're all on WhatsApp. We're all talking to each other. My buddy Ward Parker very much involved in this as well. I'm sure you've talked with him. Um,
0: Not yet, but it's all about. Well, I mean, he, yes, yes, he, yes, he, yes, you know, yes. if,
1: if you like me, you'll love him.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: This yeah. this dude's got a 400 pound brain to my 20 pound brain. And he's able to, you know, articulate this stuff, and in, and in, 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 and he's got his own perspective, which is wonderful sure. as well. He's written a really good book, you know, Always Faithful, with Tom Schulman about about their own individual experience of getting getting Afghan interpreter out. Point being is that, you know, as that's all unfolding, on one level, I'm working at the highest level inside of the U.S. military to help affect, you know, things that are going on on the ground, and on the other, I'm using my cell phone through covered communications applications to affect more quickly than what our own. US government that that was where the, we felt it was a complete disconnect. And when you when you look at all of that, I don't know I don't know you know where do you start your emotional you know, is it grief? Is it anger? Is it all the things that are associated with grief, denial and all these other pieces? um and that's where I go back to where I said you know it's, it's about acceptance you kind of accept that you did the best that you could and even up to the last minute you know, you guys like you and Scott Mann and people were just really you know crushing it through OSINT and working circles around our own infrastructure it's the shame of that having to happen yeah yeah you know without all of your experiences and the things you've done are you equipped to even affect something like that yeah so I I don't know. And someone told me one time, I have a really hard time saying that. And so I'm saying that with all sincerity. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Yeah.
0: I wonder if, I wonder how important it is, if nothing else, to write, to write to understand. Do you think that's at all at the germ of you writing? Do you think there's a part of you that's going, look, I got a lot to say. And there's a lot of different stories and a lot of different things. And it's not all, I'm not beating the same drum every single time out, but you know, we're all blind guys trying to describe the elephant and, um, th- this could get perverted very quickly, but I felt <laughs> a lot of different parts of the elephant and I, yeah. I I got a lot to write about, you know, I like it's, and that writing, writing it out is, are you sure just, it's a trunk?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> 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 yeah, Exactly. Exactly. I mean, right. I, I mean, I mean. Do you think that's a great? How good a coping mechanism is that? How necessary a coping mechanism
1: is that? Uh, for me, it's it's. I think you you hit the ten ring on that. That's an X, X, X on the on the on the paper. I I I think I had to accept that that was what what this is kind of is all about for me. And, and let's just be call it what it is. In my selfish approach to this, in all of my writing, I want my voice to come through regardless of the the medium. So if I'm if it's nonfiction, fiction, screenwriting, a play I'm working on, I want people to say that is a very Ivan Ingram voice. And the people I've had helping me with my novels, like you know, Troops in Contact, is special and works because of your voice so whatever you're doing in the tweaking Mm -hmm. of that do not lose it there are things are going to have to be changed i'm going through another round of editorial changes the development editor i have she's very good um and then i'm going to get that in front of an agent which will hopefully get that in front of um publishing house which point i could say i've got five books i'm working on and then they'll want to sign a deal this is all like talk you know, in my mind, then the movie comes out at the same time. And we're all you know, we got the Chinese theater rented out and everybody's excited, <laughs>
0: right? Right,
1: and maybe Brendan Fraser's in. I don't know, uh, I I don't mean, know.
0: we debbed it all out. I mean, it, it, it's it, <laughs> well, it, yeah, it's I mean, done now. This, yeah. this is how it all takes
1: place, right? And so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but 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 I think, yeah, I, I, I want that. Um, I want there to be an undercurrent and it's sort of a gentle, mellow energy that people enjoy reading my stuff and understanding, and when they hear my voice. Uh, or where they read it, they can hear the voice and hear the expression that I'm trying to come up with in uh, in such a way that that it resonates with them to either want to know more or they they get it. And if they want to have an argument, that's okay. yeah, but to to be able to exact uh, or elicit thought and conversation and discussion and identification and and maybe a sense of of community. Like a shared experience, even if they've never been there, that they can feel like they're part of it, then that's that's a goal. That's a goal that I'm I'm trying to to capture, achieve.
0: How does uh, Golden Compass fit in with all this right now? Um, describe how you got into it and what that does. Does it intersect at all with the writing, or do you see it as a separate line of effort that may have some of the same goals, but you know, it is definitely a different. Um, you know, a completely different mental outlook, different different uh, framework that you're working in.
1: Well, the answer is I want the writing to become supportive of that. Okay. Um. So, Golden Compass is a leadership consulting company uh, that is founded by my friend, who's also an explosive ordnance soft explosive ordnance disposal EOD sailor named Jay Lee. Uh, he's the president. He brought me on as a CEO uh, about eighteen months ago. And we have talked to several different organizations: the Markel Corporation, uh, the International Development Business um, Nonprofits. We have worked with. Uh, I've I've gone and worked and done leadership discussions with uh, the FBI's hostage rescue team. Mm-hmm. Um, we we have a pretty diverse clientele, and we teach leadership and organizational consultant uh, or organizational uh, culture uh, as consultants to different groups. And one of the things I would like to do, particularly um, with my writing, is that would be a catalyst for a discussion about leadership and sort of the crucible, as I've written about in some of my stuff, of what being a leader at war is and what tenets can be applied, perhaps, in different business models. That's not to say that I'm going to come in and teach you how to be a better financier, a, a better Consultant, perhaps working with other consulting companies, uh, or, or or manufacturer. But what I can make, what we do do, is help teams work better and understand each other and communicate well, so that they can be more efficient. And what I would really like to do is, and one of the things that we're actually getting ready to unveil uh, is what we call the Athena Workshop. And mm-hmm. the a company would not only buy the book or have the book delivered to them and. The people who participate in the workshop would read the book, and then we'd have a leadership discussion about Athena and the tenets within it. Not only the women who are featured as the primary uh, characters, but also the ancillary characters and the things that they are challenging and having to go up against, both institutionally uh, and personally. And so I' uh, see how people react to that. And so uh, the Athena workshop, we are you know,
0: finishing
1: wow. finishing the stages of uh, of actually unveiling that, but that's a that's an early release. If people are interested in that, certainly come contact us. It's uh, golden compass and then of course anything else that i've written more than happy to come and talk to people about uh you know one-time keynote or we prefer a more long time long relationship as we, as we develop with a few other companies
0: that's a really great overlap between the two for you what itch does it scratch that writing doesn't
1: um well when i was first getting out of the military i, I went through several different transitions courses and uh one of the One of the leaders, uh, business leaders that I and coaching leaders that I admire is Simon Sinek, and he always says, "Hey, Mm -hmm. find find your why. You know, start with why. Why do you do what you do?" And my why statement is, uh, I I help people. I do what I do to help people achieve, you know, maximize their potential. So I'm I'm out there, honestly. It's my way of sort of giving back to the investment that, that this country made in me. Maybe that's another selfish statement, but it's the truth. Like an investment was made in my leadership in what I was doing out, you know, on the far edges of our empire. And so, if I lead with purpose to help other people achieve, maximize their potential, it is not about money per se. It is not about your bottom line. Although we think that that can be improved, it is really about the way you lead and do things. And so believe me, I have talked to CEOs and people were like, "I'm not interested in talking to you. I've all I'm rich." I already have what I need. Uh, what would you possibly do for me? Fine. You are actually the person I need to talk to the most because you think you've got it all figured out. But moving on, we will talk yeah. to you, the people who are actually looking for growth and understand that perhaps the bottom line is not quite where they need to be. That's an easy departure point, but maybe that's kind of just got you to where you need to be. Maybe taking it to the next level is what we can help you do.
0: What does that workflow look like then? When you're is it is it kind of on a case by case basis, Hey, contract came in, somebody reached out um so that you can still maintain your battle rhythm with writing and get your thousand words a day and get your hours in. or how do you manage your time to be able to do all this?
1: Well, there's something to be said for you know the military finding ways to take up every moment of your life. So now that I can kind of apply that template against it, um, I treat the day just like a day of work. Um, I'm going to do a podcast. I block off the time for the podcast. I don't have anything on the other side. Oh, I got to run. I got to do, you know, if we're going to do right. that. That's, you know, you're present in that moment. Um, yes, it is. Sort of the contract comes in or someone wants to talk about, you know, working with the company. We block off time and, and have a discovery phone call, Zoom call with that company. Find out what's important to them. Find out what the the true requirement is and what they're looking to achieve. We kind of do objective back planning. Like, what do you want to see happen? What do you expect to see happen as a result? And how do we how do we get there? What can we lend? to to make that happen um and then as far as the writing i so if i have a really busy day with with consulting i don't put it off but that just means i'm going to have to either do the writing early or i'm Mm going to know that i'm going to have to do it a little bit later but that requires a dedication in the same way that i would with with the consulting It, it can't be i i've tried it it can't be haphazard. You can't be like, I'll just write on the airplane. Not going to happen. You might get some yeah. ideas in. You yeah. might get something done. Oh, I'll just write in my hotel room, you know, just before we go in. No, the meeting is the meeting. Ideas, write down, type in a few things for bullet points, like something good comes to you while you're thinking in the shower, write that down so you don't forget it. But to expand upon that and actually spend an hour dedicated and, with your head down while you should be thinking about what your client's requirements are and the whole reason you were brought there, that's. That's not doing them the service that, that, that in fact is, and I know that goes, I'm talking about two sides of my mouth, I'm like buy my book and I'll talk to you about my book. But that's <laughs> the point. Like we, yeah. you know, you want to learn about the the ins and outs and the lies behind that. And, the you know, what, what would resonate and what you could apply against it. Like one of I'm, I'm working right now with a sports team and they uh, bought the patrol uh, and it's a team reading book. Wow, And then I'm going to go and do a leadership discussion with them here at the end of the month. And I've also been doing one-on-one coaching uh with the coach himself for their own organizational culture within that team so as to the intersect and, and how that nexus occurs. So this is, a, this is applicable in a lot of different ways. Uh And that one kind of just manifested itself because a guy read my book and he's like, Hey man, I'm kind of interested in what this is, what this is about. What, what can you tell me?
0: Wow. That's an interesting way of that breaking out. You know, you don't, Tom Clancy never did that, you know.
1: I mean, well, he was an know. insurance salesman and had probably plenty of money in the bank. It wasn't
0: <laughs> well. Well, there's yeah. that too. Yeah. There's that, but 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 the way that it's not just it's not just a day job and your writing job. It's that there's there's an overlap between the two, and there's a way that they le- they leverage each other. Um, that's
1: well, I, I mean, that's it, that's the model. That's what I would like to ultimately have have it be. It's not sure. just the speaking engagement on behalf. I mean, just certainly I come and talk to, to whomever. Sure. Uh, it's not, but it's not just a speaking engagement. It's not just a, a book tour. I mean, yes, I want to sell books. I want, but I, right. but I really would like to be um I don't know, more holistic than that, or comprehensive.
0: Of service. Right? Still of service. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
1: I mean, and available.
0: Yeah. I, I listen, that's that's um that's such an interesting way of that playing out. Do you find it hard? This is me projecting, so you don't have to agree to this at all. But for me, I find it very hard to talk, have a conversation, especially in public, if I've been writing a lot during the day, because I'm so in my head and I'm so thinking on the page that my words aren't coming out the way I need them to in real-life conversations. Is that a me thing, or do you have that any of that as well, since you're I, writing I, frequently?
1: I'm not not sure I would ever characterize it that way until you you brought it up, but I I think that's an an extrapolation, exact translation of why I don't do that writing ahead of like the engagement where I'm actually having to go out and talk to somebody and really be articulate Um, after a day of writing, when your brain is like burning and you just want to have a beer. Yeah. I'm I'm not trying to get too, I don't think I want to set up a 7 PM, you know, keynote to, a group of, of business leaders or something after right. I've been writing all day. Right. Particularly if I've been like, if I get into the geopolitical sphere then I'm all of a sudden.
0: Yes. So yeah, the articulateness. So yeah, that's not when you would book that 7 PM keynote, right? After right. a full day of writing. Yep. Gotcha. Um, okay. I think there's two mm-hmm. other topics I want to cover just briefly. You got out in 2021, correct? 22. 22. Okay. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like it was a major inflection point, uh, not just because of the years that you'd put in and the, like you passed your 20 years, obviously, but with the withdrawal, the G-Watt winding down, I mean, yeah, we're still in Iraq, whatever, but did you feel like this was an inflection point, like what, what, what would ever be the point of staying in much longer like this is truly the end of an era, and this is a good time to dip out? Or were there other reasons, personal reasons even just to get out besides that?
1: well i had done 24 years um yes there were some personal reasons to to move on i mean i, I wasn't going to get promoted again so that i could stay for a little bit longer but i i had honestly achieved the things i wanted to achieve and i didn't i didn't seem like there was i am not saying it was pointless right but it just it wasn't anything i was going after and it had yeah. just been staying in for a little bit longer looking at it now i got out in the worst economy uh, <laughs> was uh I am still on a, a you know trying to buy a house is um, almost impossible even with being a disabled veteran it, it you know there's there's a ton of things that looking back I'm like oh didn't didn't really plan that right but again I couldn't see how the GW was going to unfold or, or I mean, we knew it was winding down we didn't know it was going to end right. kind of that way so so haphazard slash dramatically right so um I but I did feel like I had done what I wanted to do that, that I had accomplished those, those goals. So yeah. And, and now and I wanted to do something, I wanted to do something different. Yeah.
0: You, you, well, you definitely had, yeah, your ducks lined up to, to move into writing full time. Um, you've talked about your daughter, not just having been raised as the daughter of a Marine, but now being in the army herself. Is there any, how does it feel to have an adult daughter army officer in a military that you are now no longer a part of? Is it surreal? Is it um, refreshing? Is it kind of like nostalgic? Like what emotionally? How is it for you to see her experience?
1: Well, I, I should caveat that the family business is the military, and we have we're able to trace at least. And I'm going to sound like Lieutenant Dan, but we literally have people who served in American military going back to at least the American Civil War. Wow. On both sides of of the family. Wow. My oldest daughter is married to a Marine B-22 pilot. My son is a U.S. Marine officer. And my daughter, my youngest daughter, uh, is indeed an Army officer, West Point graduate. So, yes, there is a little bit. Of, it is surreal. I think there's a feeling of legacy. Um, we don't make any money in the family business, but we're mm-hmm. awfully proud of it. So there's, there's some pride in, in, in ownership there. Um, but I also think there's a legacy piece, as I said, that if there's any military wisdom to pass on, I, I do like I can get a text or a phone call from from them to say, "Hey, this is something is challenging," or "Here's how I'm thinking about approaching this," and you they're going to make their own decisions. They're going to make right you know come up with their best course of action, and certainly, you know, it's always better when you've got enough time to evaluate they're going to have to make things in, you know decisions in real time in in ways that that we were faced with you know in, in challenging situations as well but you hope that you can help equip them to to be recognitional and 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 see their decisions as being the most correct as they can be uh ethically and, and morally et cetera. so yeah there's i think there's there's a tremendous amount of pride and there's a tremendous amount of of a feeling of the handing of the baton and. It kind of goes all the way back to what I was saying. It, it's not so sort of just because my family serves, but you know we serve, and that's just how yeah. we do it. Yeah. So,
0: so then in that case, if the military has been the family business, are you going off the reservation by being an artist and a writer? Is this the new? <laughs> thing? Is this, is this the thing where they're like, oh, you know, this is a whole new thing that we our family doesn't have any experience in, or was there any precedent for that? So that people, so that your family could go, oh yeah, of course you're going to go write about stuff. Of course you're going to go, you know, try to scratch another itch now that you're out of the military.
1: Well, I guess I'm kind of living my life in reverse, right? Like now I'm the starting artist and, and I didn't start out that way Then I was forced into the military because I had nothing, no other options. So I, um, there's, there's something to be said, a little bit of a safety net of a retirement check. Sure. Um, well, my mother was an English professor and expository writer and really was into the British classics of Shakespeare and Chaucer mm-hmm. and Milton. Um, so I would say that she instilled that with me, but it was definitely all kinds of literature and things around when I was growing up. Uh, there's serious appreciation for uh, the written word and the theater. My father's uh, was an army psychologist. Uh, he's a published writer, author in his own right. and um I so I think that writing certainly is in in the family in some capacity, I just decided to embrace it in such a way that, and and I was told early on, by, ironically by a very successful writer, don't chase the bucks. Well, he's right. There's nothing to chase. The second part was, uh, you know, you should do this because you love it. Well, yeah, I, I do. And I I think there is probably a little bit of that. Well, what's going to happen? Yeah. Well, I don't know what's going to happen on this, this journey, but, I know exactly what will happen if I don't keep going.
0: That's fair. That's so fair. Yeah.
1: There are that, days, no kidding. There are days when I'm ready to just hang it up. Corporately, I could be doing all kinds of things. I mean, it's, that's yeah. not the problem, Yeah. but, uh, but I don't, I've got a valuable opportunity here and and I'm, I'm really trying to maximize that.
0: That's a hell of a commitment. Um that's um yeah, I, I can that means a lot. I think and I think that's a good thing for people to think about too, because all the talk about transition and all the talk about the economy and whatever, of course, you gotta tick the boxes, you gotta pay bills and all that. But um going back to your thing about why, right? And and rooting in a why. Um, Ivan, I wanna wrap up with the question that you pose in the title of The only article of yours that we haven't talked about, I think. Um, And I want to just pose it to you in the form of a question. How should we talk to kids about war? And by kids, I'll expand that to say civilians, the country, what should our national self-talk be about war?
1: I believe that... If the country's going to do it, you need to understand why, what we're going to do. And that they should have a discourse and discussion of, you know, the exact reason this country exists. To have a conversation, rational, perhaps, we hope, of of the wise that it's in this country's interest to go do so. And the people who need to be having that discussion are the young people, because they're the ones who are going to bear the brunt of this one way or the other. Warfare is a young person's game. um, Whether drafted or otherwise, you're going to have to either do it with a volunteer force or you're going to have to do it with a force that's you know sort of unwilling. But if that's a requirement, then people need to know why they're getting involved in it and be able to express their opinion. Um. And having that discussion. And we used to say, particularly in high stakes missions, that you need to have all the conversations of the shit that's going to go wrong and and what could happen and your, and those outcomes way ahead of the decision point so that there is no discussion. It's known this is what's going to happen, irrespective of whether you agree or not. You, you, this is, this is the, the course of action because there's no time once. It, it happens. And I think we found that out with, with 9-11. And, and honestly, in a more, in a more peaceful way, a typhoon or something like Fukushima in Japan happens yeah. or, or anything else. The first question is where's is the United States? Mm. Won't somebody do something? And we show up with a mu, and we show up with the army national guard and, you know, Let's not forget, we still have thousands, tens of thousands of troops in Bosnia, yeah. and they're all on National Guard reservists making rotations there to keep the place from being blown up again. So the stuff is not going away, and people need to have a very clear idea and understand with their conscience what's being asked of them. And I think that's a lot, of, in a lot of ways, the, the politics of this country, we lost sight of even asking our, our constituents about that. It's just assumed, hey, we're just going to go do this. So I was like, "Well, hold on. But that could cost a lot, and money's the least of it, right, Chris?" So yeah, um, I, I think as people need to be definitely more aware of what's happening in in the world, and and I mean, there's plenty of fingers to be pointed at the evils of globalization, but there's a lot of benefits too, for you know, the simple fact that you know travel and understanding cultures. Uh, brings people together. It's one of the things I like most about being in the military is going to visit all of these different countries, even in war zone, believe yeah. it or not. And Sebastian Younger and I actually talked about that and that you, you 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 might never be exposed to seeing some of these people in these, these yeah. uh, things otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. And you get home and you're like, where's a good Libyan restaurant? Like, There's <laughs> no such thing. And you're like, well, I've got to find one. <laughs>
0: so true. It is so true let's um, that's I love that answer now, not to be very Sebastian Jungery about it, but how should we talk as a nation even beyond the politics of war, like do we go to war or not? but just in general, what should our vocabulary be about war? and I'll frame this a little bit just to give it some context. you know i've I've said this before on the show, but it always bothers me that we still a lot of our talk about war harkens back to the '60s. We we haven't updated our vocabulary about war. We haven't updated our vocabulary to encompass a volunteer military, not a drafted military. We you know we reminisce about war. Our perceptions of the veteran still harken back to the abused victim of a of the Vietnam era, as opposed to maybe a different kind of veteran that we could have now in the, out of the GWOT. How do you think? We need to think just about war in general, forgetting about whether or not a war is worth going to, but just in war in conflict, war, noble fights, worthy causes, what how should we what vocabulary should we assign to that? What should we, how should we inculcate our minds to process the most extreme form of human
1: conflict? Um Well, part of that ties into the article I currently have with with havoc Journal. Um, and, on, and, and that's not my, that's not my cop-out answer. Go read that.
0: <laughs> it. It's my um, cop-out answer. They should go read it. But anyway, well, yeah.
1: they, well, I would hope that people do. And I want people to have a discussion about that because of of the transition, not only as that American veterans have gone through, but sort of the transition of society. Um, but I think, you know, the, the um, there, there's uh, many different books on American soldiers and how they. Interact or military members have interacted with the United States, and uh, Huntington has written one. You know, there's Glenn Campbell's "Warriors: um, Soldier in the State" by you know uh, uh, S- um, SLA Marshall, and, and just kind of those those kinds of things. And I'm, in fact, I met Soldiers Load Mobility Nation. Sorry, uh, with the SLA Marshall. Um, those those are all narratives and things that people kind of need to, I think, go back and look at to understand how we got to, to those just wars. and I put put my fingers up, you know, air quotes, but eventually this is kind of going back to deciding what it is to be an American. And, and, and that, that goes beyond the history, the, the, the idea of what was right or wrong inside of the American narrative, historical narrative. But as an immigrant, someone coming here to this country in the modern age, what it all means, we offer hope, we offer opportunity, we offer a fresh start. And if we're going to try and export that on a level that we're willing to go to war, to fight about it, we need to know exactly what of that we're going to try and help another, you know, if we're going to free the oppressed, help them achieve. And I don't know if we ever really identified that in Afghanistan and Iraq. And so that is a bigger discussion that we need to uh examine. But as you were th- I'm going to pause for a minute just I, I hope that answered I me mean, that's, that's a that's a really fascinating very deep uh question and I'm I'm still kind of stumbling over my my answer so I'll pause for a moment to help if that I vector that right. Please. I, no, I no, no. Thought, yeah. yeah.
0: No, I I I sprang it on you uh at, at the end because I figured when you're uh Mentally exhausted after two hours of podcasting, that's when we want to throw out the big philosophical question. But
1: well, I'm I'm going to throw one back at you, and I'm going to I'm going to ask um, your permission to Please. to read something which has never ever been made public. Please, which is yeah. the the first the opening part of my novel, Troops in Contact. I promise this is not a long. A long Love thing, it. Are
0: you kidding? No, that'd be but, awesome. Uh, that'd be badass. Yeah, yeah. Let's hear it. The,
1: I'll start with the author's note. Although a work of fiction, this book is influenced by true events. These all happened in some capacity and created a story I felt is worth telling. It is one of distance, shame, fear, anger, longing, paranoia and vigilance, a lack of closure, doubt, betrayal, the loneliness of leadership and overall difficulty. It is about pure vulnerability. Is based upon the most talented, funniest, cruelest, basest, and interesting people I ever knew. <laughs> Interspersed with humor, at times it was hard to identify, and at others seemed starkly out of place. Military service is unique. Tight bonds form between disparate groups of people who come to rely upon each other in dire situations. Sometimes these bonds are lifelong, but most often dissipate with the passage of time. My experience was no different. We once pledged forever to the other. Now we never talk. (laughs) Part one. The first stage service members go through is one of ignorance. They think they're invincible and view being wounded or killed in combat as something that will happen to other people. A young person joins the military convinced of their luck. They will always be alive to enjoy the warmth of a lover's smile in the rain, to feel adored and never take things for granted since they are in the prime of their lives. Of this, the acclaimed author Paul Fussell wrote in his book, Wartime. It can't happen to me. I'm too clever, agile, well-trained, good-looking, beloved, tightly-laced, etc. Page 296. All young people have these feelings when they go to war. If they felt otherwise, no one would even attempt it. It is also why the old veterans ignore or subjugate war's horror and instead focus on glory by telling stories that ignite the feelings of duty in the breasts of young people who hope to be tested and deemed accepted by the warrior caste. And the foolish youth believe them.
0: I promise Ivan and I did not plan this. That was a magnificent answer. That is absolutely I mean that's that's going to be quoted a lot when that comes out, if not just from the basis of this show. But I mean, when that's in, work when I, when, it, when that's there, man, that is beautifully, beautifully written, my lord. Thank you. I I, I can't think of I'm, a better and I'm answer. I'm
1: ecstatic. Yeah. I actually got to share it on this this platform for you.
0: Oh, that I, I thank you for doing that. That that means a lot, and that it, um, it really could not have been a better answer. Really couldn't have been. I don't think there's a better way of ending the show than on that note. Ivan, this was a pleasure. Um, I'm going to put all the links in the show notes so you can find Ivan's work. You can see his articles, everything we've talked about here. Um, But Ivan, just now for people who are driving and don't want to stop and take notes, uh, where should they go if you need to steer them to something Instagram, Facebook? Where should they go to follow you and stay on top of what you're up to?
1: Yep. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, Ivan F. Ingram. It looks like Ingraham, I-N-G-R-A-H-A-M. I'm on Instagram at IFI underscore writer. Um, I'm getting more comfortable in the social media space. I won't say that everything I have is magical, but I do try to keep people engaged. Uh, and then I keep my link tree updated uh, as much as I can. And then all of my contact information by way of uh, Golden Compass is available at goldencompassllc.com where you can check out me and, and Jay's bios, et cetera. Uh, and as I said, the Athena workshop is is on the way. Uh, we're just putting the final touches on that. So,
0: Awesome. Awesome. And um, I can't wait to see your stuff as it comes out more and more and more. I think this is the start um, for me of following a really, really interesting voice. And um dude, this just couldn't have been more of a pleasure.
1: Well, I'm excited. As- can be that we got to have this talk and and it was far reaching being able to to just really delve into some some subjects that uh well i haven't touched in a while and and quite frankly you you brought up and 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 put me uh in in a position to to really analyze them and we got to. Yeah, ben forty eight to thank for it. Yeah, I
0: know I'll tell you, that guy, <laughs> that guy's on fire. He's doing all kinds of good stuff oh, his, for us. Yeah,
1: his book Phantoms <laughs> is, his his poetry book uh Phantoms is is really top notch. And he's gotten some great reviews. He, one by he has. Sebastian Younger and one by by Captain Dale Die, Of course. Uh who, who people are familiar with if they saw Banner the Brothers or pretty much any more movie made in the last thirty years.
0: Or under siege, let's not forget. Yeah.
1: Oh my gosh! Keep you
0: know, pivotal for, rolling under siege. You know, Force
1: recon guys <laughs> running around in there. That's that's my that's that was that was that's my right. point. Yeah.
0: Um. Listen. Next time you come on, um, I don't want to act like I didn't perk up when you mentioned a play that you're working on, or just threw that out there, and I don't know if you're actually working on one or if that was just a conceptual idea. But, uh, to be continued. Let's do this again, and we'll talk more. Okay. That was the savage wonder of Ivan Ingram. Um, as I I say one of the most I I can't think of another episode that I've been as surprised about not just because I didn't know all the fictional writing that Ivan had been doing uh, much less that he had stuff currently out on Amazon and all that Um, but I swear we did not plan the end of that episode and to me he just couldn't have had a more spot on answer for my final question than what he had already written that had never seen the light of day. Just full of surprises. Uh, Anyway, um, hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, I'm going to make a slight prediction that this will not be the last time Ivan and I will talk on air Um, and uh, look forward A lot to the next time. And in the meantime, he's got to build a website because you guys should have one good catch-all to be able to find all of his work and all the different stuff he's doing. Um, Yeah, really, uh, really interesting new voice for me to discover, which then again is kind of the point of this show. So I guess that's not uncommon (laughs) for these episodes, but uh, a pleasure nonetheless. Okay, Um, we have... I mean, I guess I could talk about a million things going on at VetRep right now, but I won't. Um, instead, I will just send you over to the VetRep website, vetrep.org, vetrep.org, vetrep.org. While you're there, the best thing to do to find out, I mean, seriously, we have, guys, we have so many lines of effort. There is so much stuff going on with us all the time. And now that the fall's ramped back up, We've got a Savage Wonderground event coming to Boston um, on Halloween. We've got uh, plays that are in development and ramping up. We've got a resumption of the parlor season in Cornwall. Uh, And I'm forgetting stuff because I'm just task saturated. So uh, anyway, there's so much stuff. When you go to vetrep.org, scroll partway down the homepage, you will see the option to subscribe for free to our literary blog, the Savage Wonder Literary Blog. And when you enter your email and subscribe there, you will receive in your email inbox every single day a little snippet of veteran writing—fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction—and then it'll be followed by a bunch of shameless plugs for all the different things we have going on at that given point in time. So check it out. Um, as I proudly like to trumpet, we are almost. Getting dangerously close to 1,000 subscribers, which is incredibly cool and awesome for us. I don't know if you're supposed to talk about how many subscribers you have. I feel like that's a faux pas. I feel like that's TMI, but whatever. Um, I I think it's a cool number, so I'm bragging about it. Anyway, go subscribe. We'd love to have you join us. Um, Read, I guess you can't say all. Um, There's no way of knowing that, but a lot of very cool veteran writers... Some of whom are very new to the game and some of whom are not. And all of whom are worth your attention, time, and um, support. So, yeah, check it out. VetRep.org. V-E-T-R-E-P dot org. Okay, I need to thank our producer, Mike Neal, for getting this episode out. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. Um, My thanks again to Ivan Ingram. And on behalf of everybody at Veterans Repertory Theater, see you next time. We dive further into the savage wonder of veterans in the arts.